This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. We offer a free Erotica Podcast and a premium patron taboo podcast which contains more intense sexual themes. You can subscribe to the premium podcast for $2 per month or support the Erotica Podcast on Patreon to support us and allows members to request future stories and themes. Thank you for listening. This podcast contains mature content and is intended for an adult audience only. It contains explicit words, thoughts, and ideas. The content of all stories is fiction with any similarities to real people or events being purely coincidental. This podcast is not intended for anything but entertainment of the listener, and if you do not agree with the themes listed in the tags, please do not listen to the story. All characters engaging in sexual relationships or activities are 18 years old or older. This story was found on a free website and brought to audio form here. I did not write and take no credit for this story. Please visit the link in the comments to further support this author. Endangered Part 11 by LTPC Chapter 11 Part 2 Like her grandmother, she hid it away in a dark corner of the old house. It was easy to go on living your life and mostly forget about something like that after a few years. When a part-time nannying gig she'd taken to help through her last year of college turned into a full-time job, it fell even further into the background. Then her world was turned upside down, and care of the little dragon had been thrust upon her. Her life had never been the same. Miss Susan! What happened to you? She looked up from her pain hobbling to see the boy running over to help her, wide-eyed with a face full of innocent concern. Don't worry about me, Vincent. I just slipped in this damn snow and hurt my ankle. The witch lied. I'm afraid I don't have any new crystals today, though. Could you ask Tamara to call me about it when you get back to her? Oh. Okay. The lad said, hovering anxiously at her side and scowling reproachfully at the slushy snow blanketing Eddard's little car park. Here you can lean on my shoulder, at least as you go up the stairs. You're a sweetheart. Thank you. With the help of her escort, Susan made it up the icy steps and unlocked the shop. Vincent followed her in. The perfect little gentleman, he made sure she was okay, sat her down in the kitchenette, and refused to leave her until Rowan showed up fifteen minutes later. I've just been fucking robbed, and some Chinese bitch broke my foot. Susan replied to the old wizard's cocked, tufty eyebrow. The pain she'd been hiding from the youngster unleashed in her words, and it felt good that to his credit, Rowan just grunted and shuffled off into his corner of the warehouse. A few speculative mutterings drifted to Susan's ears, and soon he returned with a basket containing the best of his extensive healing concoctions. He got down on his creaking knees and began gently removing her shoe. Oh, Susan. I'm sorry. He looked up at her, old eyes beginning to water at the sight of the blackening half-inch wide depression in the middle of her poor foot. The area was already swelling, a spreading bulge of angry purple against her pale skin. I'll call Gerald and get him down here right away. Have you told Chris? No, and I'm not going to until those bastards are well on their way back home. I don't want him chasing after them and getting himself into trouble. It's not so bad, is it, Rowan? Patch me up for now and get me on my feet. We've got some crutches around here, don't we? Hmm. Yes, I think we do. I'll track some down for you, if not. He sighed, voice full of sympathy. I can't believe someone would try this in broad daylight. What if some human called the police? I'll drop you back at the compound so you can rest after Timothy is done asking questions. No, I've got work to do. Susan stubbornly waved off his concern, elevating her foot up onto the end of the sofa they kept in the kitchenette just inside the growing area of the warehouse. The aged healer gave her a disapproving scowl as he began dabbing on a reddish-brown liniment around the swelling. Don't look at me like like that, Rowan. They threatened my family, stole our livelihood, and seemed to think that they'd be coming back for more. I know you've got some ditrif bulbs hidden in the back. I'm damn sure going to have a surprise or two of my own ready if they ever come back. Susan, no. Don't do anything rash. Let Lady Narlakis deal with this. You'll get yourself hurt. As opposed to? The witch asked bitterly, waving at her ruined foot for emphasis. That's the only language these animals speak, Rowan. If they can get away with it, if you don't push back, they'll keep coming back for more. What she didn't say was that she was deeply ashamed of herself, humiliated that she'd been so easily victimized and cowed. The terrible cocktail of roiling feelings slithered within her black, poisonous snakes that set her teeth on edge. She wanted to scream, yet to weep and blubber, 
to be held close, and yet to spring into action and unleash the all-violent retribution she could imagine. It was unraveling her. Before long, a dark whisper welled up from her subconscious, tormenting her with insidious comparisons to Chris' other mates. Inevitably, she was found profoundly lacking, a pathetically impotent weakling. What would Petra have done in her place? Lillian? Probably beaten them all half to death, then robbed them instead. Annabelle had the right idea, she'd made something of herself with Chris' gifts. Susan might have raised her magical rating slightly, might be able to tackle some more challenging potions. So what? She'd been proud of that little achievement at the time too. How foolish. It was completely irrelevant in the face of the injustice she'd lived out a frown that had nothing to do with her pain creased her brow as the witch realized something else. It was only going to get worse. The revelation was coming, and there was a demon on the loose. She could not stand to be the weak link in their family. Timothy Garrell arrived promptly with two members of his security team, stirring Susan from her dark musings. He was very apologetic that something like this had happened under his watch. Susan gave him the descriptions of her assailants, recounting the whole scene in as much detail as she could remember. They definitely sound like one of the syndicate's criminal families. The fire elemental nodded somberly. That's the problem with them. They're mostly a legitimate cooperative, and you can happily do business with them for decades. But if things don't go their way, you'll eventually run across their thugs. Of course, the rest of the families will bend over backward to deny any sort of association with them, but everyone knows the deal. Timothy promised that they would do what they could, but he suspected that the culprits were already headed out of the city. He surprised her by agreeing that she did the right thing by not running straight to Chris. The last thing anyone wanted was a dragon rampaging through the city, hell-bent on revenge. Chris was on thinning ice with the Synod after the series of incidents he'd been involved in. No need to hand House Lefate any ammunition, let them worry about rebuilding their tattered reputation instead. Susan spent the following hour or so stewing, sipping a bitter potion Rowan insisted was a miraculous aid to bone repair. He knew his craft, so Susan buckled under and drank the foul, metallic-tasting stuff. Eventually, she called her regular customers to apologize and explain that they would have to wait a little longer for their crystals. They were sympathetic, and several of them even vowed to petition Rayla to submit sanctions against the syndicate. Empty punishments.it surprised her when Rowan resurfaced from managing the storefront and reached inside a pocket of his stained robes to present her two grubby, earth-crusted lumps. Be careful with them, he cautioned. I'll be the first to admit you've got a special gift with plants, Susan, but these fellows can be temperamental. I gave up on them after copping one too many needles and passing out for half a day, any more and I might not have woken up. Besides, they're not strictly legal anymore. Thank you, Rowan. She was touched, her voice thick with emotion. I will be careful. I'm not planning any wild revenge. I'll leave something like that to Chris. I just... I felt so helpless. It's stupid, but I feel like if something like that happened again and I didn't make a better showing of myself, it would break me. Believe it or not, I know exactly how you feel. Though, I do try to make myself forget. The older gentleman sighed, wiping his hand over his time-worn face. I was a... When I was considerably younger, I was attacked by a vampire. He wasn't gentle, took pleasure from my fear and pain. I survived, but for a while there it was touch and go whether or not I wanted to. Anyway, I can understand the drive you feel to take precautions. Come here. Susan stood unsteadily and opened her arms for a hug, sinister thoughts pushed aside for a moment. It was the first time they'd shared that sort of embrace, but it wasn't awkward at all. You're not so bad for an old grouch. Thank you, Rowan. Yeah, yeah, get in line. Rowan chuckled with a little emotional gruffness in his throat. I couldn't find the crutches but I've hired some, they should be dropped off soon. They separated, smiling fondly at each other, both belatedly realizing that they were becoming fast friends. With several winces and a couple of groans, Susan finally managed to clomp her way over to her pavilion. Her mind was made up on a plan of action now. The more she thought about it, the more determined she became. That old bitch would get her comeuppance. Lillian stopped by, finding Susan industriously cleaning and polishing two small bell jar enclosures. The invisible vampire gave her a hug after announcing herself and promised to help any way she could. She offered to walk with Susan to and from work, or deliver the filled crystals to Edwards herself. Susan was genuinely grateful for the concern, but promptly lied through her teeth behind a mask of pain. She assured Lillian that she would be okay that she mostly felt shaken up and a little stupid for not expecting something like this. 
It came easily, the social platitudes that would send the vampire back on her way. We'll tell Chris together this evening. Lillian squeezed her hand. I think he'll understand your decision to keep him out of it eventually. He's going to be livid when he hears though. It would be better for everyone this way. He does have a busy schedule today, and this would really have tugged him in two directions. Call me if you need anything. Susan almost broke at the mention of Chris' anger. Lillian had no idea. The vampire eventually left to go help with the security sweep around the Bean District. The team were checking for any lingering syndicate members, including those who had come for legitimate negotiation with Rayla. But they were also wary of getting caught up in a magical street brawl and risking exposure. Rowan stopped by her fabric enclosure later, keeping his muttering mostly to himself as he saw her preparations to wake the dormant bulbs already well underway. The lingering, calculating look he gave her and the industrious preparations stirred an illogical paranoia, making her think she was about to be caught and her reckless plan exposed. He really looked like he was about to open his mouth and say object for a moment, but it passed and he began preparing to tend her foot again. Out of a small bucket of hot ashes, he used a pair of wooden tongs to produce a piping hot, rune-engraved, mottled river stone. Four magical binding symbols had been painstakingly chipped into the striated white and gray surface, and filled with silver. That crafting process had probably happened several hundred years ago, but the sense of magic around the freshly charged artifact was palpable. It was a lesh stone, an ancient and somewhat inaccurate healing method. The engraved rock was part of an incomplete set that the canny apothecary had picked up at an estate sale in the 1960s. The attuned piece of polished metamorphite would slowly transmit the spell contained in the runes through the radiating heat. Before the advances of modern science, they were once the favorites of being soldiers, fighters, and those who were likely to get injured but had little skill or knowledge in the field of magical healing. Potions and spells had since grown in popularity due to their efficacy and swift action by comparison. The four glittering symbols on this stone were specific to remeshing bone. A tricky proposition at the best of times, it was one application where a lesh could be considered the equal of modern alchemical techniques due to the slow method of action. Rowan had been warming the old thing all morning using a little wood-burning brazier he kept in his potion laboratory. Now he carefully swaddled it in several layers of moist sacking they kept for the nursery, and gently wrapped it in place on top of Susan's foot. Lesh stones were made to absorb and release the heat of the fire unnaturally slowly, so while it might become uncomfortably hot, it wouldn't burn. Susan sighed as he left, putting a temporary halt to the cage fight between rage and fear that rattled jarringly around inside her skull. It wasn't that that she didn't appreciate his effort, or Lillian's visit, or her client's sympathy over the stolen crystals. There was work to be done, and she had a limited time frame. The anger was a fake sort of resolve, goading her to act, to do something, anything. Her lips pulled back in a silent, impotent snarl, revealing teeth pressed painfully tight against each other. Besides, she was flush with dragon magic, wasn't she? She could do this. But once his arms wrapped around her, or she even caught sight of him, Susan knew it would vanish, evaporate into thin air as she became that helpless, hopeless wreck from the snowy street once more. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. WRR. WRR. Rurunaya. I am the fire. I am the night. Burn, burn. Chris winced as his sensitive ears were violated by the crashing drumbeat and screaming lyrics issuing from Yurt's boombox. With a wry chuckle, he put the five gallon buckets of premixed tiling grout he was carrying down on the drop cloth pathway. The earmuffs around his neck were quickly employed, protecting him from the worst of the goblin's continuous, death spewing racket. He took a moment to admire the light tones of the eucalyptus flooring underneath his feet as it peeked out from under the protective cloth pathway into the conjoined dining and living room. The cost of the imported timber had forced him to sell off more of his dragon gold to Rayla, but he didn't feel so apprehensive about that these days. It looked lovely in contrast to the soft white plaster and reddish stone of the walls. Furnishing the huge area, and the rest of the house for that matter was going to be a costly ordeal too. However, he wanted to leave those choices up to his ladies. That was the least he could do after keeping them in the dark for so long on the house's design. Stevens' head popped up above the kitchen bench where he was installing a set of drawers. The were bison shared a sympathetic shake of the head about the clamorous music. He had bright orange foam plugs sticking out of his own ears. Chris picked his load back up and continued down the stained, fabric roadway into the yawning breach of death metal, the main bathroom. It was amusing to him that his return to the construction team led straight back to his original roles of pack mule and magical juice box. But he didn't mind. 
one could hardly complain after seeing the Goblin Brothers in action. He paused in the doorway, watching their frenzied work for a moment. Above, on the scaffold trolley, Belthelas was using a groove trowel to apply a thin layer of white grout to a section of wall in front of Yurt's nimble tile laying. Slapping on self-spacing arrays of the light gray, inch-wide tiles, Yurt was making sure his brother was hard-pressed to keep up with his demand for more tiles and prepared wall space that they'd been working their way clockwise around the room from bottom to top since before dawn. The plastered ceiling was now only a few rotations and extension of the trolley's legs away. Of course, there was magical cheating aplenty. Chris refilling of their personal crystals as well as the beautiful geode well saw to that. Yurt didn't have to waste time painstakingly settling, leveling, and spacing. He merely waved a stubby little wand in his white splattered hands, and the tiles snapped to attention like well-disciplined soldiers. Belthelas hurriedly kicked an empty tile box down into the enormous pile of discarded packaging and buckets that was accumulating on the covered floor. The falling cardboard jostled the fiendishly decorated sound system as it blared profanity. Unfortunately, it didn't manage to hit anything vital. The damn thing had horns and was painted to look like the head of some insected monstrosity, gaping maw and all. Belthelas used his pointed nails to slice open another box of tiles and slammed half the contents down on Yurt's waist-high working tray. Noticing Chris, the goblin scowled at his idleness and beckoned him over to pass up the two heavy pails onto their raised platform. Need me to move you? Chris teased, his hands on the aluminium framework of their crowded little construction chariot. Not after last time, Hancho. I value me FING tusks in me skull thank you very much. Belthelas chortled, his voice almost drowned under the music and Chris hearing protection. Just keep the supplies coming down from upstairs, big fella. We're on a roll here. Chris couldn't help giving the trolley a playful shake, sending it rocking slightly as the goblin turned back to his task. Belthelas growled and quickly retaliated by launching a glob of grout, which splattered with unerring accuracy, dead center in the crotch of Chris' tatty jeans. It wasn't more than a light, glancing blow, but it brought the dragon up short with a queasy shudder. Hey! Not the jewels! Chris pointed up at the simpering goblin who appeared to be acting out some sort of ridiculous victory jig. Back to work with ya! Belthelas chortled from his perch. I've got plenty of ammunition up here! Chris' eyes narrowed, already plotting his revenge as he turned and began trying to scrape the sour cream-like substance off his groin. It was going to leave a rather embarrassing stain. That was when he noticed Gruff, and the decorative changes he'd started on the opposite wall. The third brother was up on a ladder, doing something to the delicately modeled gray tiles. In his wake, a thin band of them were left glimmering and golden, about three-quarters of the way up the wall. There were going to be three such ribbons Chris realized as he caught a glimpse of the other two through the ladder's rungs. Purple near the floor, cream halfway up the wall, and gold on top. The goblins were nothing if not flattering to his dragon's ego. Gruff? I appreciate the color scheme, I really do, but how the hell are you doing that? he asked, negotiating the debris on his way over for a closer look. Simple. The little artisan replied, with a toothy smile. He turned to reveal his own stumpy, gnarled, rod of wood in one hand and a small nugget of gold in the other. It's just thin leaf. Gold doesn't take much convincing. Telling a piece of granite to turn purple, that's a bit more tricky. We didn't want to be cheating pricks and resort to paint though. Not in the harem spa. Chris was just starting to shake his head in amusement at Gruff's apt naming of the luxurious bathing room when his phone began vibrating angrily in his pocket. As he pulled the device free, the time displayed on the screen as well as the caller's ID set his heart to panic thumping. He sprinted from the room with a backward wave at the goblins, running to escape their deafening music so he could answer it. Got to go, Stephen. Sorry! He shouted an apology as he raced by and flung his earmuffs on the kitchen bench. Back this afternoon! Slacker! The war bison called after him playfully. Honey, I'm on the way now! Chris finally answered the call as he leapt up the stairs to the warehouse floor three at a time. I got carried away and lost track of time. Do you know what I'm looking at right now, Chris? Petra's tone seemed cordial enough, but he thought he could detect a hint of winter's breath lurking beneath. Dr. Chong is warming up his dastardly instruments, and I'm strapped open for his inspection. My poor Hoha is defenseless. Meanwhile Claire and I cling to each other for support, absent the father of our children, who's off cavorting with goblins. I know, I'm really sorry. Let me just get my spare pair of clothes and I'll be there in a moment. Don't start without me. Chris burst up out of the darkness like a hungry bat from a cave, skidding to a halt on the dusty floor to rummage frantically in his backpack. 
He ignored his packed lunch, digging deeper to pull out a fresh t-shirt. The winter chill quickly bit at his sweat-damp skin as he stripped off the tattered work shirt he wore and flung it aside. For a moment he considered putting on his spare jeans, but he dared not keep Petra waiting one second longer than necessary. Slipping his woolen jumper over his elbow, the dragon took a calming breath and reached into the ether. His abrupt appearance in Dr. Chang's waiting room caused a series of disapproving clucks from a pair of old crones. Dressed in some sort of fluff-skirted get-up from a bygone century, Chris only spared them a brief glance. His nose lead him through the hospital-style doors and down the hallway toward his mates. There's Daddy! Claire was in his arms as soon as he knocked and opened the door to the examination room. Her lush, red locks tickled his nose as they embraced. I'm really glad you made it. Chris could feel her tenseness, churning anxiety winding her tight inside. Once again, he kicked himself for being late. Sorry, honey. I intend to make it up to you, my ruby goddess. He murmured directly in her ear, stroking up and down her spine for a moment as he buried his nose in her scalp and took in the faint strawberry notes of her scent. Over her head, Harold Chong was scowling at him behind a surgical mask, glasses, and disposable gloves. He even had a small headlamp on as he rounded on the disturbance, leaving Petra's creamy legs spread and exposed in a pair of stirrups. In the doctor's hand, a condom-covered, corded wand waved menacingly toward the blonde's privates. No wonder Claire was anxious, he thought. Ah, uh, nice of you to join us, Chris. If we're all finally here, I'll begin. The no-nonsense doctor delivered deadpan before turning to his assisting nurse. Ruth, turn the ultrasound around a little, so Ms. Godran can see our progress, would you please? The brown-haired water elemental started out of a small, dragon-induced swoon to comply. Chris and Claire went to Petra's side, eager for their first peek at the treasured new life thriving in her womb. Chris took the older dragoness hand and squeezed apologetically as a shiver ran up her body in time with the doctor's careful intrusion. What does it feel like, Mom? The redhead whispered. It's fine, dear. Petra assured as she focused on the dark, indistinct image on the ultrasound. Just a little strange pressure and a bit of a chill. Oh look, there he is. Petra felt the hold on her hand increase to a death grip, and she tore her eyes away from the grainy picture on the machine's display. Her mate was staring wide-eyed, nostrils flared, and his barrel chest heaving with excited breath. The dragoness heart melted for him all over again so affected by even a glimpse of their child. A happy smile grew on her lips, and she endured his tight embrace, stroking the back of his trembling hand with her thumb. Is it healthy? Her daughter asked tremulously. Of course he is. Petra snorted up at her daughter, who appeared to be clinging to their mate as tightly as he was clinging to her. They were young and going through this for the first time. She thought back to her own experience with Claire, but things were a lot different back then. Beings didn't have access to this modern medical equipment for starters, no one did. These sorts of checkups had been done by magic back then and it was by feel and tradition rather than scientific method. Our baby. Chris crooned absently, operating in a trance-like state as he laid a huge, still dirty hand on Petra's gown covered barely their bulge. His eyes couldn't leave the fluctuating image of the vaguely human-shaped lump, even after belatedly realizing that he'd almost squeezed Petra's hand off. Yes, yes, it's all very wonderful. The doctor assured as he gently extracted the ultrasound wand and the display went dark. But we also need to perform a topical scan, and then we'll still have Claire to do, so hands off. Legs out of the stirrups please Petra, and expose your stomach. Did we get pictures? Chris suddenly asked as Petra shuffled around and the doctor prepared the linear transducer. I'll review the footage and send the best to you later. The nurse reassured him. I can't wait to see inside my little bulge. Claire almost bounced with anticipation now, her nerves forgotten. The young dragoness tiptoed up against her mate and planted a warm, fleeting kiss at the side of his mouth. Dr. Chang, is it really going to be a boy, or is mom just guessing? It's probably a little too early to tell by conventional methods unless we get lucky. He admitted as he adorned Petra's lower belly with a thick bead of cold, bluish gel. If you both agree, I'd like to make a brief magical examination of the pregnancies when we're done with the ultrasound. I should be able to confirm sex as well as give you complete peace of mind about the safety and progress of development. I've found that combined with the ultrasound, I can usually come up with some very accurate delivery dates. Of course, Harold. Thank you. Petra nodded her consent before everyone was once again swept up in watching the ultrasound display in the dark, soft shapes blurly recognizable as a brand new human. How's your morning sickness? 
Harold asked almost conversationally as he dragged the transducer across Petra's tummy for another view. I'm absolutely fine. The dragoness shrugged. I had a touch a few weeks back, but it's been giving Claire a hard time some days. You didn't tell me? Chris looked to his young mate, feeling somehow betrayed that Claire had kept her suffering to herself. And what were you going to do about it, huh? The redhead reached up and playfully booped his nose. There was no point getting you upset about a little nausea. Besides, it's not so bad if I snack all day. There are a number of factors associated. Ruth agreed, happy to advise after several of her own experiences. First pregnancies are often the most difficult, but for me, the girls really brought out the strange smells and the queasy stomach. My husband at the time insisted on cooking so I didn't have to struggle with it, which was very endearing. Well, I've got Annabelle, and she's amazing. Claire gushed. I get Amy showing up at all hours with little treats if they've made something and I don't have to even look at the kitchen. How do I not know about this? Chris complained. I feel like a lug. You help us in other ways. Petra playfully batted her eyes up at him as the gel was spread further and further on her tummy. The doctor must really be having a comprehensive look. And I don't mean foot rubs. How? All I'm doing is, oh. Ruth stifled a giggle as he blushed. Dr. Harold harumphed softly. Doofus. Claire bumped her forehead into his meaty shoulder, holding him close for a moment to savor his scent. She absolutely loved how he smelled after working, her body associating the cinnamon-flavored musk of his drying sweat very strongly with sex. Ahem, yes. Well, what about your nesting instinct? How quickly is it developing? Harold changed the subject. Ha! Claire laughed. Don't you dare, young lady! Petra warned. Mom sleepwalked into my room the other night and started stealing my pillows and bedding right out from under me. The redhead bubbled, hiding behind Chris as her mother ineffectually tried to sweat at her from the examination table. I followed her back into her room, and she pulled the mattress off the bed and shoved it in the corner to make some sort of cocoon out of towels, pillows, and anything soft she could get a hold of. It was so funny I took a few pictures when she finally curled up. I'm so embarrassed. Petra covered her eyes with a hand as her daughter extracted her phone to show Chris. With Claire, I didn't really start until around month seven when I was really cow-like. I'm not getting any urges during the day yet, I swear. It's quite natural in your species, I'm told. The doctor consoled. You should start planning, though. Are you going to take time off work to support your mates, Chris? Claire and Petra went googly-eyed as he puffed up like a tundra grouse for his bold proclamation. I'll be there to wait on them hand and foot. In fact, there are already some preparations completed in our new home. Really? Petra asked hopefully. What? It's a surprise, and I can't take the credit, but I think you're going to love it. Wait, do you think you two can split a nest? I hadn't thought of that. The dragoness shared a look with each other before turning back to him and nodding, beaming radiant smiles. Petra reached up for a hug, which he was happy to carefully and somewhat awkwardly provide around the slightly peeved Dr. Chang. I do hope you're well prepared, sire. She murmured huskily in his ear. I'm insatiable when I nest. He didn't get a chance to reply. A perfectly healthy fetus. The doctor wizard announced. Look at the screen here, lovebirds. Quite large for this early stage of development, but nothing to be concerned about. Chris watched in awe as Harold made a small adjustment in the position of his handheld device and the perfect silhouette of his developing child resolved into clarity. All of a sudden he could easily make out budding arms and legs, a bulging little belly, and a noggin that would put a Roswell alien to shame. It felt like he was falling endlessly down a tunnel as his dragon mind obsessed around and around in a short circuit of paternal pride that he could have stood there staring for hours at the frozen screen. But it wasn't long until Ruth was wiping up the impedance-matching gel and Claire was fearlessly climbing onto the examination table to replace her mother. The stirrups and wand required for her transvaginal ultrasound weren't really that uncomfortable it turned out. Embarrassment had been her main hang-up, but she found it easier to ignore after seeing how stoically her mother had disregarded the intrusion. Besides, she really wanted to see Chris' enthusiastic reaction for their own child. Dr. Chang's surprise grunt was their only indication that something was amiss. Their cries for clarification of such a loaded sound went unanswered as the doctor held up a warning finger and concentrated on finding the correct orientation for the wand inside Claire. The three dragons watched tensely as first one, and then a second patch of fuzzy darkness resolved themselves on the screen into the shape of two tiny skulls. Twins? Petra gasped, giving voice to everyone's shock and surprise. But, 
I don't how. Claire turned to her mom for reassurance. Her mind raced simultaneously back through memory to search for some overlooked indication. It was overwhelming, her thoughts suddenly inverting, launching into the future to construct new imaginings of her life under the demanding regime of two babes. She wasn't ready for this. Behind them, Chris groped blindly for a nearby chair and sat himself down with a thump. That's a good question, Claire Bear, but we'll work it out. Petra reassured her daughter as they watched Dr. Chang do his work. Beside him, Ruth was almost quivering with nervous excitement. I only remember one burst of magic at conception. The young mother worried. They'll both be dragons, won't they? I'm sure they will. Don't work yourself up, darling. Hey, I can't believe you went and upstaged me like this. Intact placenta. The doctor muttered to himself under his breath as he watched the ultrasound like a hawk. Indications of complete chorion. It could be separate amniotic, magic might. But does that mean they're, doctor, please? Chris couldn't handle the suspense. Huh? Oh, give me a minute. Harold Chan slowly removed the probe and handed it off to Ruth for sanitation. He stripped off his gloves and appeared to stare down into Claire's womanhood speculatively for a moment before helping her close her legs and indicating she should lie back on the examination table. Finally, he reached inside his lab coat, down into his blazer pocket to produce a thin, well-polished cedar wand. May I? Uh-huh. Claire nodded nervously, glancing up to Petra. The doctor was extremely cautious, taking as much time as necessary with his incantation. His wand tip traced slow circles above the young dragoness womb as he murmured out the framework for his small, gently questing spell. His small subjects were incredibly delicate, surrounded in a palpable bubble of churning, potent magic. The last thing he needed was to trigger any sort of instinctual defensive magic from Claire. He might not survive. Still, that would be preferable to, heaven forbid, somehow damaging the tiny dragon babes with a hastily constructed spell. At the last moment, he realized that he might be better served to look at Petra's child first to establish some sort of baseline for comparison. He was in uncharted territory after all. Dragon pregnancies were rare enough these days that a doctor in the bean community could be in practice for several lifetimes and still never preside over one. The claim of a single conception event triggered his concern though. Dragon twins were utterly unheard of, and these two presented a biology which obscured the nature of their origin quite effectively. With Petra's permission, Harold began the process again, guiding his spell painstakingly down through the chaotic sea of potent magic surrounding her child. The dragoness stood patiently for him, indulging his metaphysical intrusion through layer upon layer of pulsing energy. His mind boggled at the sheer quantity of the stuff. These women were abuzz with magic, and he knew exactly where the glut was coming from. A thin sweat of concentration rose on his brow as he finally approached what he hoped was the last protective layer surrounding her engorged uterus. There was pressure within, like a bottle of champagne. It felt like he was gently tapping at the cork and it scared him a little. He steeled himself and slipped a sliver of his awareness inside for the gentlest of inspections. Dazzling, pure radiance hit him square between the eyeballs like a celestial sledgehammer. It was simple, blunt force magic. An instinctual query from warm, contented pre-thoughts backed up by godlike magical force. With his magical sensitivity fully opened, Harold was instantly blinded. He caught only a fleeting glimpse of the fetus before his mind fled the overwhelming sensation, slamming up its own mental barriers as he desperately retreated back into his own body. His wand flew up out of his fingers, rebounding off the stark ceiling before clattering noisily to the floor. Harold slumped back in his chair, panting, shaking. His magical senses were going haywire, caught rapidly fluctuating between rebelling and rejoicing. His whole body felt like a struck gong, resonating away the discordant power in an uncontrollable, but not entirely unpleasant note. He'd felt something like that only once before. You. The wizard pointed an unsteady, accusatory finger at the culprit. He managed only a few more mumbled words before his vision began to fade at the edges, his blood pressure reaching a temporary but critical low. I should have guessed, Harold. Harold! Dr. Chang, wake up! The voice sounded far away, but a cool sensation on his forehead was rapidly drawing him back from senseless nothing. With a start and a tired groan, Harold was back in the world of the living. He found himself laid out on one of his own examination tables, a headache battering at the inside of his poor skull. Carefully, he opened his eyes and found four concerned faces staring down at him. They barely let him sit up for a drink of chilled water before the demands for answers resumed. He supposed he didn't blame them. 
Your progeny appear to share your affinity for unrestrained magic, even from within the womb. He looked the soon-to-be father in the eye as he laid it out straight. Your son is likely well on the way to developing a class 1 status, less than three months into his gestation. But wait, my son? Yes. We had a rather personal interaction on the magical level. I wasn't prepared for his sort of overflowing power, not with my senses so fine-tuned. Good thing he's a happy little bug in a rug, or you could be talking to a mindless, burnout husk of a doctor. Silence settled over his audience as that news was absorbed. Harold was thankful for the opportunity to close his eyes and just enjoy sipping at his water in peace for a moment. You're going to be big and strong, just like your dad. Petra hummed, manicured fingers tracing proudly back and forth over her abdomen. Harold chuckled at the dragoness clucking. No one had yet thought through the ramifications of unleashing multiple such beings as Chris on the world. They were headed for a fundamental shift, even without the revelation. What if his children could pass it on, too? Shit, what about the vampire's kid? Was he going to have to preside over that ticking womb bomb? With a shudder, he realized he still had one more thing to do before he could retreat to his office for a much-deserved NAP.AS the happy dragons coalesced into a loving embrace. They didn't notice the doctor retrieve his wand from the linoleum floor. Their hug was interrupted when he explained the need to delve back into the exploratory spell he'd already woven around Claire's twins. Harold was braced against the magical onslaught this time. He managed a good few seconds of vital observation before he was forced to slink away from the remarkable pair of beings. Their emissions were slightly weaker than their half-brothers, but they were also much smaller. Where the twin girl's biological presentation had left him wondering, their unified magical emanation did not. Exhausted though he was, he managed a weak smile for their anxious, russet-haired mother. You're to be the proud mother of identical twin girls. Sometime in the first few days of your pregnancy, while your embryo was made up of just sixteen cells or less, something went wrong in the cleavage, and it separated into two distinct, but genetically homogeneous embryos. I don't care about the textbook explanation right now, doctor. Claire interrupted as it looked like he was going to continue. Are they going to be okay? I remember reading something about identical twins having a high chance of complications during pregnancy. That's unfortunately true, the risks to both you and the babies are not insignificant. However, as I was about to say, because the twinning event happened so early in the process, each of them have their own placenta and amniotic sacs rather than sharing. By ultrasound, they essentially look like normal twins, but when I got a glimpse of them by magic, it was obvious they were cut from the same cloth so to speak. This type of pregnancy is by far the safest in the scale that goes all the way up to conjoining, so that's excellent news. Thank God. Chris murmured hugging Claire tight as they patiently listened to the doctor's explanation. We're not out of the woods by any stretch. Cautioned Harold, holding up a hand to stifle a yawn before he continued. I'll need to keep a close eye on their development, and especially their presentation before birth. I should also warn you that we may have to consult a human specialist about the pregnancy. Twins like this are often born underdeveloped and can require months of intensive care. Just look at the size difference between an individual twin and Petra's single pregnancy at essentially the same stage, and you'll see what I mean. We'll be fine. Chris whispered into the shell of Claire's ear as he sensed the tension mounting inside her. They'll be perfect, I just know it. How could they not with parents like us? Claire dropped the doctor's gaze, unable to contain the small smile growing on her lips as Chris began diverting her gathering worry with playful nibbles against her neck. She couldn't believe how brazen he was in front of Dr. Chang and his nurse, but it was working, and she loved him for it. Ah, I see you two are becoming distracted. Never mind, I need a break myself after all that. Claire, I'll arrange a one-on-one -on -one visit in a few weeks once I've had time to do a bit more research myself. On that note, I think I'll go collapse for a bit. Congratulations, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Chang. I really mean it. Chris said sheepishly as the man turned to leave. If there's anything I- Don't worry about it, Chris. It's my job. Harold made drunkenly for his office. He was exhausted. Behind him, someone let out a happy squeal, and he could hear excited plans for breaking the joyous news being thrown around for discussion. He almost made it to his receptionist to cancel a few non-urgent appointments that afternoon before he was accosted by the damn woman once again. She was a tenacious one. He'd give her that. Brilliant, too if he was feeling generous. Brilliant, but still somehow twisted. Right now he didn't have the fortitude to deal with another of her question sessions, requests for equipment, or solicitous urgings for samples from his patients. Dr. Mayer, look! 
I'm sorry, but I'm exhausted and don't have the willpower for you right now. He forestalled. Her desire, whatever it was, never had a chance to be voiced. Then a wicked little opportunity for payback sprouted in his tired brain, and he turned around and beckoned the scientist to follow him back the way he came. You know what? I do have something you'll be interested in, but you're going to owe me big time for this one. I'm talking at least a month or two without going complaining to Lady Narlakis that I'm not providing you with adequate magical support. Ruth and the dragons were still excitedly reliving the unexpected news when he paused in the doorway with the lean, graying scientist in tow. Harold couldn't help noticing the gleam that seemed to enter his unsavory colleague's eyes as she saw who was there. Her already excellent posture notched up one final level to her parade ground best at the sight of the dragon family. On second thought. Chris, you remember Dr. Mayer? Harold started before they noticed his return. She's been bugging me for days to somehow get you into the MRI. So, as a personal favor for going above and beyond, please lend her a little of your time for the sake of my well-deserved nap. But I... Chris started to protest. Cool, thanks. Harold was surprised by his own casual confidence as he turned to Dr. Mayer beside him and handed her his access card. Perhaps he was beyond caring in his exhausted state. You kids have fun now, but bring it back with a full tank. So help you if she's dinged up. The first order of business was to husk the dietrif. In the familiar, cozy den of her indoor pavilion, Susan worked slowly, carefully to revitalize her dangerous little charges. They took a brief soak in warm water, loosening the outer skin layers of their tulip-like bulbs. Donning a pair of thick leather gloves and safety glasses to protect herself from any acidic mishaps, the witch spent a few minutes gently abrading with an old toothbrush. Dirt and oniony skin layers came loose, exposing the first hint of greenish flesh beneath. When she lifted them up to the light for a better look, their tiny white roots were already starting to wriggle enthusiastically in response to the pampering. There was an enclosure for each, into which she placed a bed of moistened sphagnum. A generous sprinkling of crushed quartz crystal came next, a ready source of magical energy to encourage their sprouting. With each bulb nestled securely, she spritzed liberally with a nutrient solution. On went the foot-high bell jar containers, clamped firmly in place. The little terraria were placed on a heated pad underneath a wholesome, powerful light source. There were air valves on top of the glass domes, which she opened just a crack so that they could breathe. Under the stimulus of warmth and light, the hazardous occupants should be set to gradually awaken from dormancy over the next few days. Susan stood for long moments just watching the quiescent dietrif, distracting herself from the heavy burden of her imminent decision. There could be no more procrastinating. The ball of dark wax rested ominously behind her on the spill-stained potions workbench, retrieved from a long sealed, hidden compartment in the bottom of one of her chests. Now, exposed to the light of day for the first time in over a decade, it seemed to loom ominously at the edge of her magical scenes. Susan's hands came sternly to her full hips as she turned to face the thing, a determined scowl on her pretty brow. Perhaps her imagination was running wild, but surrounded by glassware and bottles of dried ingredients, it both thrilled and terrified her. She almost lost her nerve, but the bowl of water was already starting to steam above her Bunsen burner, its blue flame flickering merrily. That heat was echoed in the uncomfortable warmth of the lesh stone, and in the throbbing pain of her ruined foot as tiny slivers of fragmented bones slowly teased themselves back together. With an angry huff, the dark-haired witch took up her colander and scooped the wax ball quickly into the steaming water bath. It was done. Intent blue eyes didn't leave the slowly rolling, bobbing orb for a moment. Black wax began melting quickly under a gentle simmer. It sloughed away, liquefying to form dark bubbles on the surface, merging ever larger. Soon enough, a discreet layer of the oily stuff lay atop the steaming water. With gentle motions, Susan used the colander to slowly dunk the shrinking ball, watching for the first hint of the promised vial at its core. A quiet clink of glass on stainless steel finally announced that her vigil was over. Careful of scalding her fingers, Susan transferred it back to her workbench and pried the remaining softened wax open, revealing a sigil-engraved capsule. The inch-long, sharp-ended magical prison was made entirely of glass. Two tiny, exquisitely crafted cones of transparent silica fused perfectly together at their bases by magic. The pea-sized inmate waited placidly inside, oblivious that its lengthy incarceration was about to come to an abrupt end. Susan recognized her grandmother's hand in the runes for insulation, stasis, and magical nullification etched on the curved surface. It was a primitive, yet effective magical construct. Simple was often best with runes, unless you were a true expert in that particular arcane art. 
Agatha's work stuck to that principle, keeping nosy spells out and interminably containing what rested inside. The dark wax made sense to her now, blocking light as the spell and glass could not. The dark green, almost grayish resident didn't seem intrinsically dangerous. Susan held the magical repository by its ends between finger and thumb for a closer look. Its surface had an intricately gnarled, almost woody appearance. Small grooves and crevices flowed, merged, and subsumed around and around as if the little sphere were in fact made of a highly compressed network of tough filaments coiled inward on themselves. The vivid sketches of the Suthazoa's victims depicted in that gruesome elfin book made the witch suspect that this might, in fact, be the case. Perhaps the true kernel lay somewhere within the protective fibers. Or maybe the filaments themselves were the vegetative germ of the ancient jungle creeper. She couldn't know, as there had been no depiction of a seed in that obscure text, only sketchings of, Susan shuddered and closed her eyes, fighting to banish the image that sprung into her mind's eye. It wasn't pretty to imagine your own desiccated corpse. Nor a twisting, arthritic stem of knotty, interweaving vines reaching slowly skyward from the rictus of a screaming mouth to produce a single, delicate white flower. Anger fueled her resolve and she refused to acknowledge that as her fate. Not with Chris' magic flowing strong in her veins. The delicate vial shattered with a satisfying tinkle on her first attempt, the dry Suthazoa seed rolling a little way across the bench before it came to a reluctant halt against a beaker. Apprehension and anticipation put her on the verge of hyperventilating now as she took off her lab coat and safety glasses. Lacking a better tool for the job, she took up one of the longer slivers of glass. Pausing only for one final instant of fearful reluctance, Susan turned off her Bunsen burner and plucked the dark seed up, hobbling over to her wicker sofa. With her foot in such a state, it was a relief to finally lay out the meager tools for her amateur operation and lay down on the soft cushions. Beside her on the coffee table lay a small hand mirror from her purse, the sharp sliver of glass, two large quartz crystals brimming with dragon-tinged energy, and finally the naughty little suetage-azoad.it was awkward lying on her front, but after undoing a few buttons on her shirt and pulling it down over her shoulders, she eventually arranged the mirror in one hand to satisfying effect. With her head turned to the side, cheek pressed into the couch's fabric, she could catch a view in the mirror as her other hand probed gently at the base of her neck. Susan felt downward across a few bumps of her vertebrae and onto her upper back. Her fingers pressing into the soft depressions on either side, approximating the diagram she remembered from that accursed text. There didn't seem to be much padding above the ridge of bone, she'd definitely lost a little weight recently. Chris' attention and the often strenuous exertions he demanded of her seemed to be whipping her metabolism into overdrive. She spared him one final apologetic thought as the glass bit sharply, slicing a shallow gash through pale skin, unleashing a gentle trickle of red. This was for herself, not him, she rationalized. With shaking, bloody fingertips, the witch dropped the improvised scalpel and reached for the seed. Quickly now, for the eager thing began to writhe in her trembling grip at the first touch of vital lifeblood. Susan reached to the base of her neck and settled the seed into the jagged incision, holding it gently in place. Within moments, a crawling, tugging sensation spread across the area. Susan watched in the small mirror's reflection as the greenish-gray seed seemed to gather her spilled blood unnaturally around itself. It visibly seethed now, writhing like a den of winter snakes, uncoiling and slithering slowly into the warmth of her flesh. The sensation intensified, first making her want to scratch at the area. Then, as the infant plant began to truly insinuate its thirsty tendrils into her tissue, it clutched painfully at her magic and drank. Her gasp of pain and shock was cut short the instant one of its tiny hyphae-like roots infiltrated her spinal column. An involuntary seizure of spasming muscles preceded the wave of paralysis that flowed down her body as the greedy thing tapped her like a well and sucked hungrily. Her panic rose as she realized she could no longer move below the seed's intrusion. Her breath was coming fast, the pain in her foot forgotten, paling in comparison to the ripping apart, the devouring of her very magical essence. It was all a terrible mistake, she realized too late. The book had never mentioned anything about this. In her final moments, Susan had the foresight to snatch up the crystals, transferring one to each hand as the alien presence began spreading upward too. She could still feel every ounce of pain as the creeper started spreading its woody tendrils more boldly through her body, following some ancient genetic blueprint to seek out pockets of magic. The panicked which was soon powerless to do anything but lie there and hyperventilate ineffectually as it took control. Mind scrambling at the prison of an unresponsive body, Susan could only voice a plaintive gurgle of terrified protest. The itching, wriggling shoots burrowed upward under her skin. Uncaring, 
and intent on the mass of fear-taxed neurons it could sense nearby, the Sothozoa sought its host's brain. Behind fluttering eyelids, Susan's consciousness rebelled as her magic was consumed, converted in its entirety to fuel the rapid growth that a an alien presence pushed at the back of her mind. It was undeniable, unresistible. Her thoughts struggled against it, but it entered her in the slow, inevitable way a tree's roots crack pavement. The witch's sanity retreated, fleeing sentient thought in a terminal effort to preserve itself. In her final moment, Susan got a glimpse of the creature that consumed her. It was old, so old. Cool and placid as it woke from long, lightless slumber and juxtaposed to her terrified mental scrabbling. And it was happy, content to spread its roots in fresh, fertile new soil. Then, nothing. The Suzoa eventually spread its hungry rootlets to every corner of the magic-rich host. The mesh of fibers was already starting to differentiate, thickening into tougher bundles around the contours of bone, branching into intricate cheese to wrap around delicate blood vessels and nerves. It threaded outward into soft tissue, ever thinning and refining until its microscopic root hairs worked their way up through pores. It finally breathed air, exchanging gases after what felt like an eternity of dark nothingness. Wherever it went, through bundles of muscle, through delicate organ, and the calcified lattice of bone, the Suthozoa did its best to contour and integrate to the existing structure. It tasted as it went, sampling complex biochemistry and adjusting its own patterns to match. Magic greeted its roots wherever they roamed. It's slowly stirring. Instinctive memory could not recall a time when its parched wood was so thoroughly wetted with the stuff of creation. It had a wild, primal taste to it too, excellent nourishment. A delicious, yet terrifying flavor of power that did not belong entirely to the empathic host. The primitive patterns of plant thought took on a warmer tone of satisfaction. Near-glutted and content in the instinctive knowledge that this would be a fruitful joining, it slowed its headlong grab for energy. It had more than enough now to reform its seed if the living vessel could not survive. Slowly, as it meshed with its new host, the Suthozoa became aware of its surroundings. More specifically, it felt the brimming power of yet two more potent sources of magic clutched in its fingers. Dark tendrils ruptured outward from pale skin, enmeshing the two crystals in a more secure embrace, supping slowly. It began to sense more magic of various quality and origin nearby, but it had more than enough for now. The witch had wisely provided enough for a complete germination, there was no need to start digesting her tissues. Perhaps there was even enough to last for a whole season, if they conserved their magic. But where was the sun? It longed to feel that precious warmth after so long in the dark, to bask and absorb that delicious radiance. That was all that was required now, all that held back what promised to be a most complete, wonderful joining. With halting, jerky motions and glazed eyes, Susan Barris' five feet six inches form picked itself up of the sofa and shambled haltingly out of her little pavilion. The Suthozoa became aware of the damaged limb flesh as the host's nerves fired protests of pain. The generous host was damaged, possibly in danger. Its slow thoughts quickened in defensive anger, sweeping the witch's head left and right. It was ill-suited to interpret the complexity of nerve impulses on its own. The bright scene before it was confusing, moist air, a host of pollen on the warm, slowly circulating breeze, and verdant, jungle-like growth under rows and rows of false suns. The thing stared uncomprehendingly, awed by the magnitude of the magical feat for long minutes. The sun must have set and risen many, many times for such a strange spell to be devised. It could feel the nourishing warmth radiating onto its skin, but the Suthozoa was mistrustful. The healthy growth of so many magical brethren spoke to the potency of this strange magic. Perhaps that was where the witch got her power? But it was not fooled. This was no true sunlight, and it would not do for the joining. It must continue the search, fearful now that perhaps something had happened to the daylight god. For why else would the host create such a complex, wasteful spell if the sun's rays had not abandoned them? With ease, the damaged host flesh was surrounded and supported by new filaments. They worked their way smoothly through connective tissue, without rupturing any more of the host cells. Tiny secretory nodules began to bud in the tissue around the wound, disgorging a cocktail of nutrients and proteins matched to the host's genetic blueprint. Others still began rallying the immune system, accepting toxins and broken pieces of the host for reconstitution into useful nutrients. Above the worst damage, a rough, grayish bark spread across blackened skin, expanding to encase the lower limb in a perfect supportive shell. Yet more filaments nudge bone slivers carefully back into alignment in preparation for reinforcement during the host's next period of rest. Satisfied for the moment with the healing process, the ancient plant resumed its search for the all-powerful, eternal Sunday asterisk asterisk asterisk. 
I can smell him on you. Petra hissed accusingly as she hovered over Dr. Meyer's shoulder to watch the MRI display dot on one screen in the array. A camera showed a view of Chris lying patiently in a hospital gown, entombed in the white depths of the expensive piece of imaging equipment. His bulky body barely squeezed into the scanner's barrel, but they made it work. Another monitor was just beginning to resolve a few confusing grayscale images of some section of his body. She's been sampling the product. Claire agreed, narrowed green eyes glinting disapproval. Maybe she needs a reminder that she's not his brewmate. The blonde continued with menace. I'm not above a few friendly taps if the message isn't getting through. Amelia chuckled, ignoring the posturing dragonesses, using the mouse to click through a series of setting options on the console. Her apparent nonchalance drove the pair to step away into a muttered conference of quiet gesticulations. The truth was, Amelia just didn't care. His protective mates only had one valid point of leverage over her, and it wasn't a back alley be down. If they couldn't figure it out, she wasn't about to tell them. The MRI began to thunk and whistle loudly, collecting another short series of test images as she began to instruct the program, selecting the field of view, slice, phase, planes, and a host of other parameters which would hopefully elucidate the structure of his soft tissues. If his anatomy was half as fascinating as his biochemistry, she could collect enough data to write a few hundred research papers. But the part of his body she was eager to delve into contained a most fascinating biochemical mystery. Analyzing a dragon's physical constitution was all well and good but... You're imaging his cock! Petra bleated indignantly as her next suspicious glance at the screens finally registered the DR's intended target. The cross-section of bundled muscles and dense bone of his thighs were well-defined by the machine's radio emissions, a fainter cut-through of a fleshy tube rested above them. The mother dragon essence cry must have reached him inside the loud compartment in the other room because Amelia's subject twitched and raised his head. Is something wrong? Chris asked, a little edgy to be jammed in such a cramped, claustrophobia-inducing space. Hold very still please, Chris. Amelia pressed the talk button and spoke calmly into the microphone. We're just fine out here but the stiller you are, the sooner I can let you go. Find my ass. Petra growled but kept her voice lowered. If you zap his swimmers you're a fucking dead woman. Agreed Claire heartily. Amelia sighed, this would be so much easier if she were alone with him. She'd hoped his zealous minders would go their own way after their appointment with Dr. Chong. They were righteously protective of the fascinating young man, but she supposed she couldn't blame them with her track record. With the machine's programming loaded and about to get underway, Amelia swiveled in her chair to face his pregnant mates. Look, ladies, his sperm will be just fine. She paused, thinking back to a few inconclusive studies she'd heard of before qualifying her answer to her scowling, beautiful audience. Any possible damage would be fleetingly temporary anyway, so just clear the barrel a few times, and he'll be loaded for bear all over again. Besides, if his sperm are anything like his other cells, they'll be a bunch of resilient, tenacious bastards. Damn straight they are. Claire accepted proudly on her mate's behalf. But what are you doing looking at his privates? And why do you smell ever so slightly like him? Ah, uh, yes, I suppose that does deserve an explanation. It is fascinating that you claim to be able to sense some sort of chemical emission identifiable as belonging to Chris. Amelia wondered, intrigued by the idea. She briefly contemplated starting a new research avenue to explore their olfactory sensitivity, but G-protein-coupled receptors were hellishly tricky things to study without adding magic or the subtleties of dragon physiology to the mix. It's not a claim. Petra backed up her daughter. We know. Very well, you're aware that I convinced Chris to give me some small samples of his blood, yes? Well, I've made some truly groundbreaking discoveries. His macrophage white blood cells, for example, are incredibly modal, aggressive, and seem to possess an uncanny ability to befriend and cooperate with foreign immune systems. I also think he has somehow inherited some sort of immunogenetic memory bank, allowing him to quickly produce antibodies for infections I highly doubt he's ever been exposed to. At least that's my working theory. Honestly, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. He is, to be blunt, a biomedical gold mine. And I suppose you want the resource extraction rights? Petra's eyes narrowed, hands twitching to do violence. Well, yes. Amelia cocked her head curiously at the woman's angry response. I suppose it doesn't have to be him. Dragons, indeed beings in general, have a lot to offer humanity in terms of medical science. I'm told you've spent time working as a nurse, working with humans? Yes, some. The dragon admitted. 
then you should appreciate the suffering we mere mortals face as our bodies rebel against us with cancers and various degenerative conditions. Aren't you terrified by the increasing emergence of resistance and microbes of all shapes and sizes? In Chris' blood, I have glimpsed potential answers for all these things and much, much more. I also may have even discovered the root of your near immortality, the holy grail my former employer was so tempted by. You've tested it on yourself. Claire made the leap of logic, simultaneously horrified and fascinated as she watched her oblivious mate lying there calmly on the computer screen. Yes. Dr. Mayer nodded, her stern bun of gray hair bobbing as her eyes flashed proudly. It didn't take long to isolate a fraction of his blood serum that contained a range of very interesting low-weight genetic expression factors and stimulants. In lab cultures, my own cells started to show signs of telomere repair and increased DNA proofreading efficacy in the first generation. They seemed to actually seek out and modify the behavior of foreign cells. I can't even begin to explain how impossible that should be. They're nucleic, which means they're behaving like some sort of good Samaritan RNA virus. I'm awaiting the arrival of a new machine which will allow me to do my own sequencing. I couldn't resist though. After the effect persisted for several generations without much degradation, I started human trials. Yourself. I see now. And what gives you the right? Well, I don't see any other volunteers around here, do you? I'll admit, it seemed a bit rash even to myself, but it's not like the FDA is equipped to deal with something like this. I've known for a while that I'd have to take this leap at some stage. Otherwise, this technology might take decades to make it through ethics boards and animal testing. By then, I'll probably be infirm or dead. I wouldn't mind a few extra centuries to complete my research. But what if that's not the way it works? Claire worried. What happens if you can't get any more doses? Or if your cells start repairing themselves so efficiently they turn cancerous? What if there's a magical component to all of this that can't be replicated? There are a thousand things that could go disastrously wrong with your experiments. All possible outcomes, and believe me, my devious old mind has run through some weaponization scenarios that would make you pee your pants. But we will never know unless we look, and the potential is too great to ignore. That is why my next area of preliminary investigation is centered on Chris' remarkable ability to transfer magic, sexually. I understand this not a unique mechanism amongst your species? No. Petra supplied reluctantly after a few awkward moments. She might not agree with the woman's attitude, but it would be better for her to be informed than ignorant of their basic biology. Male dragons somehow evolved to collect and transfer magics while our females are more focused on containing and manipulating the energy. It can take years of concerted effort from a pair to gather enough magic to successfully energize a dragon egg. Magic seems to be fading from the world, so it's continuously growing harder to do so. But both of you are pregnant by him, and a vampire too. Amelia raised her eyebrow challengingly, striking to the heart of the issue. The dragoness furtive glance to her stoically scowling, cross-armed daughter was telling. There was a secret to be unraveled. I hear it's caused quite a stir. I didn't believe my ears at first, but I could swear I overheard some mutterings about a prophecy if you credit such unlikely notions. Petra considered her next words carefully, unwilling to disclose Chris' mysterious connection to ancient, enigmatic magical forces. He is unusually virile. The blonde nodded, deciding to boast of his prowess as a way of diversion. I think it is an effect of his magical strength. It took my previous mate and I six months of almost exclusive rest and wedding to conceive Claire. Chris accomplished the same feat in our first coupling, but it is not the only remarkable aspect of his power. For example, he ranks high in the first strength category of magical beings. His aspect is the otherworldly ether, unique amongst dragons and seemingly a continuous wellspring of magic for his use. As a dragon male, when confronted with eater mates, he naturally harnessed his incredible power to do what he does best. I see. What's your interest? Claire's asked. You're a human, you cannot hope to harness or control his magic on your own. I guess there's money to be made, but we've got the market cornered on that front. I'm in this for the fascination, for the science, and I admit, for a little personal gain when the opportunity arises. Not anything as base as money. Amelia forestalled their protestations. I couldn't care less about money other than to stock my research supplies and keep me in coffee and strippy for life. Delicious chewy bastards. No, I want answers to questions. Don't you wonder how he can transfer such quantities of magic to you? I know how he does it. Petra laughed. It's absolutely delightful. Not sex. Amelia grunted, waving away the dragoness humor. I mean at the molecular level, 
the real mechanism. It's a challenge, an unanswered mystery. Magic goes against our current understanding of the universe, but I know I am the person for this research, at least in my field of biochemistry and medical science. I feel like my life has been preparation up to this point, training to bring me to this pinnacle. I've been gathering the experience and knowledge for decades, and now I'm right at the pioneering edge of a frontier where I can discover something truly new and useful for a change. A chill ran down Petra's spine, a premonition that the sort of knowledge this woman sought was the equivalent of magical polonium. Worse, the sweet, innocent test subject was possibly the most fruitful individual on the planet from which to squeeze such answers. Claire frowned thoughtfully. The scientist's daughter had done little to soothe her concerns, but her own interest was awakened. How did he do it? Chris was no normal dragon male, the brood knew that now. Could the doctor actually provide them with some much-needed answers to his origins and abilities? She'd been toying with the idea of furthering her own education in the medical field, hadn't she? This might prove a valuable opportunity to become involved if she had the brains. It would be prudent just to keep an eye on this old snake of a woman. Lillian was right. You're definitely some sort of evangelical scientific fanatic, or something. I'm worried your work could lead downhill very quickly for us dragons if it comes out we're a bunch of walking, talking fountains of youth. That sounds like a dragon hunting nightmare all over again, but I can appreciate the potential to do good. Perhaps you're right though, it should at least be investigated. It seems almost criminal to ignore the possibilities if it's as groundbreaking as you claim. It is. I can't believe you're agreeing with her, Claire. Petra groused. This is dangerous. Chris was already kidnapped over it, and the good doctor here poisoned him, or had you forgotten? I haven't, mother. But if Chris can work with her, so can I. Claire's reply sounded a little terser in her ears than she'd planned, and she softened it as she flipped her reasoning into a question. Are you saying you'd let thousands of people die painful, preventable deaths rather than even consider doing the research? No. That's not. Petra paused, reconsidering. I mean. Oh, I don't know. I understand your concern. That's why Chris has full rights over all of my research and findings. Our contract stipulates that I don't release a breath of it to anyone without his permission. In fact, I'm in breach just talking to you without his say-so. Amelia swiveled back, activating the microphone again to address Chris. Try to stay as still as possible, Chris. We're almost done. Could you please nod slowly if you agree that I can discuss my research with your overbearing mates? I'm being read the riot act out here. Chris smiled at that image, nodding a few times. It was good Lillian wasn't out there too. He trusted Claire and Petra to keep their cool about whatever Amelia was hatching. The vampire, not so much doubt he hoped the doctor's involvement wasn't too bitter a pill for his brood to swallow. That encounter with one of Rayla's old gods was confounding, terrifying, but the directive to explore, to understand the universe and its workings came through clear enough. His efforts so far had already sent his magical abilities soaring to godlike heights under Haley's imaginative tutelage. But it was painfully clear to Chris that there were superior intellects out there, far better suited for the actual scientific groundwork than his own. He hoped Dr. Mayer could be a valuable link in that process, if she could be convinced to dial back the unhinged scientist's routine. I in the monitoring room, shielded from the strong magnetic field, the tense, almost sullen silence was broken by a ping. The three women put aside their differences, at least temporarily, to view the incoming results. My God, look at it. Magnificent. Emily leaned closer to the screen as grayscale cross-sections of Chris growing began to arrive at the console. Behind her, the dragoness shared a conspiratory giggle. Phrasing. Claire chimed. Not his penis, you lusty girl. The doctor glanced to the bottom of the first image where one cross-section displayed every detail of his endowment. Though I admit it is quite remarkable. Here, look at his seminal vesicles. This isn't at all consistent with human norms. They're enormous, practically surrounding the bladder, and the tissue is showing up far too dense on the scan. It's engorged? If I didn't know better, I think they were cancerous. But maybe the cavities are just full of fluid? It's the right settings to show up protein. Petra glanced to her daughter who shot back a guilty look and stopped teasing her plump lower lip between her teeth. She smiled knowingly as the entranced doctor continued her assessment, oblivious to the effect her explanation was having on her audience. New slides and planes of view were explored as the clunking machine in the other room finally quieted. His whole secretory system is hyperdeveloped. Amelia mused. Her interest was well and truly piqued by what she was seeing. Chris might be wearing a human shape and conforming roughly, 
but it was clear the dragon had left its mark on his human body. You didn't have to delve into the innards of his reproductive tract to notice his abnormal size and dense musculature, but it was fascinating nonetheless. Physiology wasn't her true passion, but seeing the difference in these structures made her all the more excited to explore the corresponding abnormal molecular biology. She was sure it was just waiting for her to discover. The bulbourethral gland is immense, as well as the prostate. He must produce a copious volume of pre-ejaculate? Ahem. Petra interjected, clearing her throat. Yes, and I suspect it may have a high fructose content. Simply fascinating. The woman took a small notebook from the breast pocket of her white coat and scribbled a brief notation down to investigate the claim. Well then, onward and downward so to speak. Oh my, his bulb and ejaculatory muscles. Well, that's not exactly relevant. I suppose this all makes sense in a polygamous species, but what? Claire pressed, much louder than she meant to. Hmm? Nothing, nothing really, it's just his testicles. What about them? Is there a problem? No. I was a little taken aback by the number of lobes is all. They're very tightly packed, even disregarding their volume it would mean, hey? Is this thing still going? Chris was finally sick of waiting around inside the MRI after it was apparently all over. He had pregnant mates to fuss over, and an underground house to build, firearms training to resume, and a boss who wanted him to go on a cross-state mob-style intimidation mission that evening. Last night, he and that boss had crossed the boundary into the territory of committed lovers, but he still had to keep it a secret at work. That didn't even begin to take into account his other lovely mates who vied for his time and attention. There were calls to make, research on protective runecrafting to conduct, and a fusion reactor to help design. If he ever got around to it, there was an enormous gold deposit just waiting for him to somehow requisition it from deep underground on an unknown property. Was that stealing? On top of it all, he lived in constant fear of vengeful elves, kidnappers, a demon, a fiancé's parents who probably thought he was a demon, and the real possibility of the entire human race losing its collective shit over the damned revelation. There simply wasn't time in the day to lie idly inside the scanning machine if it had finished its work. Yes, Chris, you can come out. I'm done for now. Dr. Mayer spun on her chair to face his mates. Was it her imagination that their perfect complexion seemed a little rosy? There was no beating around this bush, so she just out and made her request. I need a sample. The dragoness started speaking at the same time. The elegant mother voicing what sounded like an adamant negative, while the willful daughter said something about conditions. Hands on flaring hips, or arms crossed under breasts that Amelia would have defined as unfair in her ignorant, wild youth, the two dragons stared at each other. Their silent communication was complex, if slightly comical. It involved a series of lip twitches, a huff, two sets of raised eyebrows, lots of flashing green eyes, a cocked head, a hair flick, and even a tiny, indignant stomp of a sneaker. The ubiquitous yellow-capped plastic sample bottle made a clack on the desk as Amelia set it down with finality, interrupting them. But both women looked at it questioningly for a moment, then forgot their quiet tiff and outright laughed at her. Genuine mirth was not the reaction Amelia expected. She didn't get it. Petra even put a hand on her daughter's shoulder, apparently needing support as she almost doubled over with their shared humor. There will be conditions. The redhead giggled around her hand like finding a bigger container for a start. Petra redoubled her musical laughing. Mom's right, of course, but I want some oversight over what you're getting up to. Claire elaborated, managing to get herself under control. If you can agree to keep me updated and spend a little time explaining your process and findings, I'll cooperate. Chris is too busy to stay up to date with your reckless progress, so I'll step into some sort of a liaison role. And I want you taking the pheromone cancellation potion like your life depends on it. The blonde added. Amelia considered oversight was precisely what she didn't want, but the dragoness cooperation was more than she'd actually hoped for. She picked up the sample jar, frowning speculatively at it. Okay, I accept. You say this isn't going to be adequate? Not nearly. Petra smirked. We'll keep him distracted for a bit, but I can tell he's antsy to get back to work, so we should make this quick if we're actually going to do it. You'd better go find something bigger, doctor. But what about Kalek? Amelia started. We'll take care of that. The dragoness chimed in happy unison. Guys? Chris rapped on the door to the little screen-lit operator's suite. Is the magnet off? Can I get back in my clothes? I um, I don't mean to rush you, Dr. Mayer, but I've got a lot to do this afternoon. We're almost done, honey. Petra cracked the door. 
Why don't you come in here for a second and have a look at the scans, hmm? Go. Claire whispered in Amelia's ear. Hurry. Amelia rushed away, ignoring her slightly perplexed test subject as she brushed past him on her vital mission. She made for Harold's supply cupboard, rifling through the shelves with increasing frustration and disregard for tidiness. There were a couple of containers that might have worked, but how big did it need to be? They laughed at a 70mm container. What sort of inadequacy did laughter imply? What kind of multiplication factor did she need to apply? Her mind raced back through the MRI scans, following impossible volume estimations down rabbit holes as she searched. She found an unused sharps collector which undoubtedly had the required volume, but the plastic lid was designed specifically to stay on. That was a deal-breaker because the one-way orifice possessed a pit trap of inch-long plastic teeth no self-possessed male would dream of pointing his equipment at. Finally giving up on the ruined supply closet, she bustled into the staff break room in search of a bowl, or heaven forbid, someone's half-clean Tupperware. She really wanted that sample. Salvation came in the form of a box of jumbo-sized Ziploc sandwich bags they kept under the sink. Handy things, or so she thought as she scuttled back to the MRI suite in triumph. Amelia still couldn't believe Rayla had purchased Dr. Chung his own MRI. He claimed it was second-hand from a hospital and picked up for a bargain, but she knew the expense of even preparing the room to safely operate such a huge magnet could be monstrously expensive. There might be magic involved, though. A baggie? Petra hissed quietly as they made their hushed liaison just outside the monitoring room. We'll be lucky if he doesn't blow straight through it. I guess it will have to do. Okay, stay out of sight, he can still be a bit shy sometimes. Heart thumping with illicit excitement, Amelia listened at the door. The two women worked like a well-oiled team. With cooed words and gentle kisses, they quickly coordinated against and then overwhelmed his startled but weak protestations. It was over soon. Ending in an extended series of deep, satisfied grunts, accompanied by delighted giggling and lewd, mock-astonished encouragement. Later, after they were gone and she was left with an alarmingly occupied bag of warm, thick semen, Amelia brought up the room's camera feed. They had worked together all right, one beauty whispering and nibbling in each of his ears as he sat, throbbing and enormous between them. They shared him, each dragoness taking part of his length in hand, a fat testicle gently cradled and tugged in the other. Once started, they didn't let up. Eyes tight shut, he erupted into the tenuous vessel in a mighty series of bucking, white volleys that set even her neglected old nether's a-quiver. Asterisk 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 Rayla should have known she was in for a terrible day. What else could she expect after abandoning her territory? Barely two days of neglect left a line of petitioners stretching all the way out the great doors, clamoring for her attention. It was a nightmare morning in court. Never mind that she had just exhausted herself bending her energies toward their protection, to maintaining the tattered remnants of the secret they all clung to. She was still magically drained, and tired, and cranky. Not everyone could have a dragon of their own to replenish their magic as if by, well, magic.it was as if her subjects took her return as license to brazenly voice their most ridiculous complaints. Her modest tax on magical transactions was too high. The conditions leading up to the revelation were too strict. Someone's uncle had cheated them out of a magical family heirloom. Rufus Falder's successful nightclub was too loud and too full of vampires. More to the point, they had the audacity to kick out drunken magalings from powerful families for stressing the limits of the protective charms with harmless shows of co-ed, impressing magic. There wasn't enough regulation on the sale of new dragon crystals. There was too much regulation on the sale of new dragon crystals. Dragon crystals, dragon crystals, dragon crystals. Rayla wanted to scream. Worse, it emboldened some of them to new heights of entitlement and pettiness. There was one young elf noble in particular who was there just to push her buttons. She knew he was basically a spy, that someone was putting him up to it, but he really needed a lesson in the realities of appropriate behavior in her court. He pranced, back and forth in front of her throne. Pranced? With an audience of her rowdy subjects behind him, his tongue softly lashed her with saccharine-veiled advice on how to better rule her meager kingdom. As her ears twitched with barely suppressed rage, Rayla fantasized his gruesome, painful end, perhaps an agonizingly slow submersion in a strong caustic solution. She knew where to find a particularly nasty strain of flesh beetles that would surely appreciate dining on his softest, most precious masculine parts. But she felt her favorite magic calling to her, the chill of her beautiful dark eyes. She would have him chained in some filthy dungeon, dropping by every few days as the fancy took her to drive another bolt of shadowfrost through a limb. The wounds would advance slowly toward his core, 
and if she was patient, she might draw out his eventual demise over an entire week. It would be fascinating to see which claimed him first, hypothermia or sepsis. The dragon would no doubt be sickened by her cruel thoughts. But they were only idle fantasy, really. One of her more orthodox sisters might flay the pale mutt for his insolence. Her mother certainly would, but then the foolish young elf would never dare show his face in her subterranean halls. Rayla considered herself a relatively tame, subdued drow. Her moderate nature had won her her territory after all. Despite her position though, leniency had made her rule the butt of many a barbed joke from her family over the centuries. The house gallanter noble was safe from her reprisals for now. The trade his family company brought to her territory was too valuable to even risk offending the young upstart by telling him where he could shove his unsolicited advice. She knew they were allied with Lefate. Since the great house had disgraced itself, Gallanter had slipped two agents her way under the guise of evaluating her territory's newly flourishing magical trade. She couldn't exactly call their bluff because everyone else was doing it too. There truly were opportunities to be had with Chris handing out his magic like penny candy. As if to drive that point home, she saw that the dwarves had finally overcome their cautious nature. An Alliance-certified journeyman Smith and his busted female cousin were there to petition for her patronage. They hailed from Kalamak Hold in the bleak Yukon Ranges far to the north. A journeyman wasn't a particularly lavish gesture from the Alliance, but it was not to be scoffed at. Rayla accepted, of course, adding another shiny speck to the brilliance of her rising star, that had been the fleeting highlight of her morning. It was quickly dashed by speculative whispering as Timothy slipped into her court and glided to her side to whisper the foul news of Susan's assault in her ear. Rayla was genuinely stunned and it must have shown on her face because the disquieted mutterings from the pews grew fretful. The theft was so brazen, so clearly calculated, and so like the syndicate. It was her fault, too. She'd offered them insult by blowing off their second meeting with the emergency trip to Argentina, so they'd flexed their muscles. What got to her, though, was that they'd brought those type of hitters with them to begin with. They were serious about getting their hands on dragon crystals, the fools that IT was going to backfire, of course. Hadn't they caught wind of what he'd done to Lefate? Perhaps they had, and were now counting on Chris' need to walk on eggshells around the synod to protect them from reprisal. Clever, it might work, at least in the short term. The dragon would need to be restrained from seeking vengeance. Susan had done the right thing by keeping Chris in the dark temporarily, but Rayla wished she hadn't gone and called all her clients to apologize and explain what had happened. Several of them arrived within the hour to swell her schedule with demands for action and sanctions. They were led by the enchantress Tamara, who Rayla genuinely respected. But she couldn't agree to their calls for action, it would have been a declaration of war on one of the most powerful trade entities in the being world. A crotchety grandmother witch and her missing goat later. The young vampire Amanda interrupted proceedings by barging into the vast room. Rayla knew something was very wrong before the woman had taken her third sprinting pace up the lush red carpet to deliver a phone to her hand. Just how wrong should have been obvious from her head of security's stressed tone. More by his admission that he didn't know what he was dealing with and needed her immediate help. But now, as Rayla stepped through the boundary of the hastily erected deference charm around the old apothecary's shop, even she was brought up short. Susan lay naked, suspended more than ten feet up in the freezing winter's air. Her limbs posed as if crucified, eyes closed in lifeless serenity as her long black hair whipped about in the stiff breeze. The scenario might not have been so bad if not for the mass of dark vines punching into her shoulders, lower back, and calves. The branches spiraled and twisted around each other to form some sort of thick, knotty trunk, erupting from the crack the snowy pavement below. The evil thing must have burst up out of the cold earth to impale the poor woman. Gods, she skewered. Rayla whispered to herself when her mouth stopped hanging open uselessly. Hot tears began welling unbidden in her eyes, her heart turning icy with calculating rage. Synod be damned, this crime would not go unanswered. The syndicate will pay for this, dearly. Along the witch's outstretched arms and across the pale skin of her exposed front butted thinner, flexible stems. Unfurling outward in mimic of a fern, they displayed small arrays of black leaves along their length. It formed a broad, frilly halo around the witch's body, waving sympathetically with her hair in the gusts blowing down from the north. My lady, it wasn't the syndicate. A gruff voice rasped beside her, causing the elf to round on the proprietor of the establishment as he and Timothy approached. At least I don't think so. I saw Susan walk out here, called out to her. There was something wrong. When she ignored me, I followed. It grew out of, it grew out of her. What? I swear it, Lady Rayla. 
The old fellow begged, impotent tears beginning to well in his earnest eyes as he rang his hands. She just stood there looking up at the sun for a moment. I was shouting, but it was like she couldn't hear. It just, it burst out of her skin like a nest of terrible black snakes, all writhing and waving about. It was so fast. Smashed right into the ground and started growing. Her clothes started shredding off when the little ones came out. The whole thing took less than a few minutes. Look closely, Rayla. The tall elemental urged beside her. Where is the blood? She's naked but her one injured foot is bound. Don't forget, she's breathing. Rowan added hopefully. I've never heard of any spell like this, have you? You're right, she yet lives. Rayla murmured, fascinated as she began examining the suspended witch with magical senses. There was a powerful magical aura there, but it was off. Impressions from the previous evening's dinner at the dragon household didn't match what she saw before her. This thing was dark, and slow, and very old. It. We must find Chris immediately. The dragon should be here. Lillian has already gone to collect him. She already tried to get close but whatever it is just about harpooned her to the pavement with something from the trunk. It saw her coming, and it's damn quick. The flame spirit's tone indicating he had a growing respect for the thing, at least from a professional standpoint. Rayla, what is it? I do not know, which concerns me greatly. The elf admitted, tall and dark in her human form. Something about it tickles maddeningly at an ancient memory, but it is yet to surface. Wizard, you say she was acting peculiarly? Take me to her witch's kitchen. Of course, lady. Rowan nodded gravely. Timothy, we must contain this area. We need more of your men walking the streets. If this is the syndicate's work they may still be lurking. Reinforce the charm and start laying some weaker spell rings of repellency and forgetfulness further afield for the humans. Use a vomitous hex if you think it necessary but no one must lay eyes on this, this malignant tree. For all we know it may become a long-term feature if we cannot uproot it. Talk to Michelle about our options if that is the case. Rayla followed the venerable wizard around the southern edge of his car park, skirting the thing with as much distance as possible. He led her through the front door into his shop, where she paused with her senses wide.it had been years since she had visited her craftsfolk personally. Sitting resentfully in her court was perhaps providing an unfairly dirty window into her subject's affairs. I confess I am impressed by your assemblage, Rowan Eddard, she said once she had seen her fill, walking over to a shelf in the corner of the room and reaching high to extract a dusty jar from amongst its gruesome counterparts, she turned to smile at the old man. I don't imagine many customers ask for the pickled darkweed galls of my homeland's Great Lakes, or your other more obscure stock. It is nice to know that someone in my realm appreciates a broad range of tastes. Why, even the sight of these reminds me of my childhood. They are yours, Lady Rayla. Take them, take them if they please you. I can't attest to their quality anymore, they've sat there unbothered for years. Since I made my last batch of black and venom if memory serves, but at my age, that's no sure thing. I couldn't. Rayla returned the jar to its resting place. It is good you use them for such qualities, some of my sisters were not so scrupulous. Besides, I always preferred them fresh. As you wish. This way, please. Rowan announced, very satisfied with himself after the praise from his icy ruler. I'll show you where Susan worked. She was a promising talent, you know. I've never seen her like in skill for tending magical plants. In Susan's pavilion, they found the strange scene of her preparations. The shattered glass of the seed's containment vial was particularly interesting to Rayla, who used an incantation to restore an image of its intact form. So freshly broken, the memory in the glass was still strong. She read the runes it once bore, designed to hold stable and contain. But what had it contained? Her instinct pinged off a frustrating, stubborn old memory, and she scowled savagely. She didn't want to involve anyone else, least of all her mother. But what choice did she have? Taking axe and saw, or pitch and flame to the tree seemed like a terrible idea with the witch still somehow attached to it. Rayla was saved the decision for a few moments more when she spotted the young Dietrich in their new enclosure. A white eyebrow cocked in the squirming apothecary's direction. Magical plants were by no means an area in which she considered herself an expert, but she had encountered these before. Hungry white rootlets were already spreading eagerly down into the moistened bed of yellowish-green moss. They were mine until recently. Dormant, of course. Rowan pulled nervously at the collar of his dirty robe, clearly uncomfortable under the piercing scrutiny of her gray eyes. Susan asked me for them after she was attacked. I thought it might do her good to work on something that helped her feel more secure. 
She said that she'd been terrified by her attackers and offered little resistance during the robbery. I think. I think it shamed her deeply. I'm sorry, I'll destroy them right away. Hold, Rowan. You are not to blame. Indeed, such precautions may be necessary for the future if you wish to continue selling the dragon's bounty. Your insight into her state of mind is revelatory, though. I believe now that her current predicament is self-inflicted, though for the life of me I do not know what creature has taken hold of her. I think so, too. The wizard croaked. He wiped hurriedly at his eyes to collect moisture onto the back of a wrinkled, work-worn hand. I should have watched her more closely, but she looked at me so, hush, fault lies with the brigands who attacked peaceful folk like you and Susan. Rayla comforted, tentatively patting at his shoulder. Say what you would about how they vexed her to distraction, she was a fierce protectress of her subjects. And with me, for failing to protect you from them. Let us go see Susan, I may have one final card to play before we resort to our own rash action. Though I'm loath to place it on the table. Chris had arrived by the time they emerged back into the grim chill. The young dragon was nigh inconsolable. Magically enhanced vision let her see that Lillian and the two wide-eyed dragoness had encircled him, restraining hands on his shaking body. Timothy was trying his best to explain that Susan was still alive but it didn't seem to be having the desired effect. There were fresh signs of a scuffle in the dirty snow around the group. A red trickle spilled from a rapidly sealing split in the vampire's lip. Seeing that might have coaxed a smile to Rayla's lips at another time, but not today. Lillian's entire left side was dark with dirty water and splotched with snow. They'd a hard time of it apparently, but soft touches and loving words seemed to be holding the grief-stricken man back for the moment. Rayla sighed, producing her Maginette phone from the pocket of her fur-lined cloak. She took a few careful steps toward the impaled witch for a better view. For the first time, she realized that Susan's body, indeed the whole dark construct, was aimed perfectly to face the dimming afternoon sun. The woman's face showed none of the pain she should rightfully feel, she looked almost tranquil. The elf assumed Susan wouldn't care about her modesty if she somehow survived this ordeal. So she felt no qualms snapping a photo which revealed her pale breasts and dark thatch of pubic hair in full detail. It was the dark tree thing growing from that curvaceous, suspended form that was of concern. Backing warily away to stand by herself, Rayla began composing a suitable message to accompany the picture. It wasn't an easy decision to seek her mother's guidance. Things had mellowed between them over the centuries since their major falling out. Still, words had been given screaming voice in that conflagration that could never be erased by time. They'd nearly killed each other. Distance worked wonders to patch their relationship now. These days they were civil and even shared a grudging respect for one another. They had common enemies and occasionally participated in joint schemes to ruin them. Ultimately, they were still mother and daughter. It was just best for all involved that they didn't see too much of each other, lest old habits and passions reignite. Mother, I hope this finds you well. Rayla mouthed to herself as she tapped the message into her screen. No, that was too obsequious. Mother, I need the wisdom of your advanced years. What am I dealing with? Simple, a little barbed, good enough. She sent it, and began walking over to try her hand at reassuring Christopher. His mates had him gently corralled in a prison of warm, loving bodies. Annabelle and the sprite had just arrived, the girl taking charge of the effort with the general's efficiency. Two pregnant dragoness hugged his front, pressing themselves firmly against him. Invisible to the unaided eye, Lillian embraced him from behind, her strength ready to hold him back at the first twitch of his muscles. The blue pest was sitting on one of his shoulders running small, soothing hands through his short hair. Finally, Annabelle clung to his other side, head resting against a bicep as she meshed her fingers with his again and again. Chris' sad eyes hadn't left Susan for a moment. Though he was more docile now, Rayla could read each pang of the anguish he felt, written clearly on his grief-twisted features. Wet tear trails streaked his cheeks and his magic was leaking discordantly out for all with the skill to see. A fluctuating, barely maintained containment nowhere near equal to the task. Christopher, let your magic. Rayla's phone began ringing most inopportunely, and she scowled at the pesky device. It was her mother, of course, with a suspiciously rapid response. Sorry, I have to take this. It's about Susan. Good evening, daughter. The silky voice spoke down the line as Rayla answered. My, but you're having all the fun these days, aren't you? Hello, mother. Rayla answered curtly turning away from the inquisitive looks of the dragon's brood. How are you? Really, Rayla? Small talk? Why don't you instead explain to me how you had a Suthazoa living right under your nose, 
but I wasn't informed of such delicious news until now. Sothazoa. Rayla whispered more to herself than in response. Oh daughter, you didn't know, did you? The voice tinkled with amusement. How delightful. I suppose they were already dwindling before your time so it is no surprise. With all that time you spent locked away in my library while the others played at warriors and mages, I thought you might have found reference to them. I remember reading something. Rayla frowned. It's not coming back easily. Something about assassinations? That's right. Yes, for a few hundred years a number of our clans favored them for brute force attacks on the day folks' strongholds. One elf, infested with a Suthazoa, could usually break, burrow, or chop their way through a castle's rock, and a score or more of defenders on their way to claim a critical head. Accounts I have heard say they were only thwarted when their magic was spent, or the plant was so damaged it began consuming the host to survive. They were too effective though, and used too recklessly. It is fatal then? A parasite? Rayla asked dejectedly. Well, yes. Though it is more something between a parasite and a symbiote. If the host's body runs low on mana and the Suthazoa feels it can no longer sustain itself, it will bolt to seed to preserve its germ. I never witnessed such a thing myself, but I'm told it's quite the horrific process. They're thought to be extinct, you know. But this just happened today, mother. Will Susan survive? The dragon is beside himself and the syndicate is, in part at least, to blame for all this. I cannot have him burning the Shanghai docksides to the foundations in revenge. Slow down. The elf matriarch chuckled darkly. Explain yourself, daughter. So Rayla did, realizing much too late the price her mother intended to extract in return. Fascinating. It must be bonding with the host somehow. My dear, it sounds like you're in well over your head. Perhaps a visit from your wise old mother is in order. There is much I could do to assist in setting your realm in order, and besides, it is beyond time I met this dragon. Whispers of him have begun to reach even my ears all the way down here. You have been a willful daughter to keep him to yourself for so long, but I will forgive you that. No. No? And shall I keep my advice on the Suthazoa to myself also? Her mother's tone contained a quiet, dangerous note Rayla had learned to fear from a young age. She hated that it still set her heart quickening in fear. That is to say, I am busy, mother. You may come for a day or two, a week at most, but I have not the patience to entertain your schemes beyond that. And you will come with one retainer only. Humph, ungrateful child. You would have me travel like a pauper and kick me out of your house like some overstaying day filth when you are done with me? Spiteful, Rayla, spiteful. Her mother paused for good measure, letting her reprimand draw out for dramatic effect. Very well then, I will make the arrangements. Rayla suppressed a growl of frustration. If you didn't make those sorts of stipulations with the infuriating woman, she was likely to show up with an escort of battle sisters. In the best case, you had to feed and house fifty petulant drow, driving your subjects to rebellion in the process. In the worst case, they carved you up slowly. What of the Suthazoa, mother? Your advice? There was a long pause. Well, there isn't much of anything to do, Rayla. You must let it run its course. Bitch. Rayla seethed. I had more useful advice from a gallanter rat in my court this very morning. There's my loving little strumpet. Her mother laughed infuriatingly. Expect me soon, dearest daughter. Rayla wanted to throw her phone in the snow and stomp on it until it crunched no more. Instead, she forced several score of deep, calming breaths and went to relay the somewhat hopeful news. Chris, I know you're hurting, and I'm sorry. Rayla spoke softly, reaching past Annabelle to touch the warm skin of his forearm. I was going to suggest that it is acceptable to let your magic free in a time of emotional turmoil. In fact, it might do you some good. What? What happened to Susan? His shoulders shuddered with halting breaths. My Susan. My mother called it a Suthazoa, an ancient and very rare creeping plant that seems to share a host's body and magic. Chris, Susan did this to herself. I know you must want to run over there and cut her down, but that would be a terrible mistake. She would almost certainly die if you succeed. That thing is part of her now. We must wait and hope that she endures whatever process has taken hold. That is your best chance of having her back. His great body seemed to sag, to go limp at her words. Rayla felt the tension ease from the taut muscle beneath her dark fingertips. A wordless, mournful cry broke free from his chest as his radiant aura burst forth, unfettered by his restraining efforts. It was as dazzling as ever to behold, washing through Rayla's every cell to bathe her in intoxicating magic. 
It was impossible to ignore. There was a powerfully sorrowful taste to his essence now. The release elicited a series of sympathetic gasps or choke sobs from the present beings. The extent of his love and loss was undeniable. Rayla found herself wicking unbidden tears away once again, and not only because she felt the depth of his affection for the dark-haired witch. In an instant, she was certain that no one in her millennia of life had ever loved her as the dragon loved his broken brewmate. Not her mother, her sisters, nor any of her infrequent lovers over the centuries would weep so bitterly, so openly at Rayla's suffering. The ancient elf finally understood now. It wasn't just the sex that drove these women to bind themselves to him, or the incredible magic. He loved them all, truly loved each and every one of them. A tenth of his potential for intimacy, to care and cherish was more than anyone had ever offered to her. Shaken by that revelation, Rayla stayed with them and kept vigil as the sun crept toward the horizon. Ever dependable, Timothy organized the delivery of warm coats for those who had rushed unprepared into the snowy chill. Word quickly spread amongst the Denver beings, first of the attack on Susan, and then of the further incident, and the dragon's mournful watch over his mate. Many hurried to the scene to witness the spectacle, or attempt to voice their support. The security team kept them politely away. Soon food, blankets, and thermoses full of hot beverages began to arrive as if by magic. They were shared by all as they waited, hoping that I in the last, low-angle rays of light, the Suthazoa was finally satisfied. The strange tree-like structure quivered for a moment before it began shrinking and retracting its many limbs back into Susan's body. Everyone watched the sinister, almost serpentine grace of the vines, mesmerized as the witch began gently sinking to the ground. Chris was up and pounding his way across the car park to her before anyone could think to restrain him. With the final dark filaments retreating seamlessly back inside her, Susan's eyes peeked open. She let out an indignant shriek as her bare foot touched the snow. Half a second later she was tackled into a fierce, warm, and wonderfully familiar hug. If not for the instant turgor response of a new cell layer incorporated beneath her skin, she might have sustained a few broken ribs. His scent surrounded her just as surely as his thick arms. It washed away the last of the tension and worry that lingered from the bizarre awakening of new limbs, magics, and plant-like urges. The experience over the past hours was beyond anything she'd ever imagined after reading that damn elfin book. I'm fine, Chris. It's me. I'm just fine. Susan clung to him, returning his urgent kisses. He seemed to be undecided between kissing her, squeezing fiercely until she could barely breathe, and running his hands disbelievingly over her unblemished skin where moments ago had sprouted the Suthazoa. I'm sorry I frightened you. Thank God you're okay. Are you sure? Chris was beside himself with relief to hear her voice. He cradled her face in his hands, leaning down to kiss her sweet lips again as he brushed windswept, midnight-hued hair behind an ear. What happened? Susan looked down, hiding her face in his jacket because she was unwilling to admit to her impulsive actions just yet. Susan? Please, I was so worried. I was very silly, okay? I went and made a life-changing decision in the heat of the moment. I think it could have gone very badly, but I'm still here. She looked up at him searchingly, fearing to see anger and hurt in his eyes. Please just hold me, Chris. Just take me home. Nothing would make me happier right now. I love you, Susan. And I you, Honeybun. Claire watched indulgently from the kitchen bar as her mate cuddled and fussed over Susan. They'd heard the details of her story now. The witch thankfully looked unharmed except for her foot, if on the point of an emotional breakdown. To be fair, the entire brood was shaken, it had been a harrowing afternoon for them all. Slim hands snaked around her midsection from behind, and Annabelle's warmth pressed into her back, accompanied by a waft of homely scents from the kitchen. Isn't that adorable? Her first whispered, breathing close against the shell of her ear. I'm half expecting Susan to bark at him to leave her alone. She would never. Claire countered, half turning her head. I'd be playing it for all it was worth if it was me. This afternoon he was so... I don't know. Intense? I was sad for Susan, and I wanted to cry, but at the same time it felt nice to know that he cares so deeply for one of us. All of us. Annabelle corrected softly. I know what you mean, though. I'm sorry your happy news hasn't had its time to shine. Twin girls? That's amazing, Claire. I didn't have much say in the matter, but thanks. She placed her hands over Annabelle's on her slowly swelling tummy. They just hugged for a while in silent contemplation, ignoring Bartholomew's loving, boisterous nibbles where their skin met. Through the open doorway, they watched as Chris returned from Susan's dresser with a hairbrush. 
A sigh was shared between the two observers as he coaxed the witch to lie back on his chest, and he began gently easing out the afternoon snags and tangles. It is happy news, isn't it? Annabelle asked offhandedly. Of course. The redhead was quick to assure. Just unexpected and new. I hadn't even considered the possibility of twins in my wildest fantasies of our future. I... I am a little worried about complications. Dr. Chong says there are risks with them being identical and Chris would... Chris will support you however you need. Annabelle pressed her lips gently against Claire's warm cheek, a mostly platonic show of friendship and affection. We all will. Look at him, rocking his loving protector routine in there. You know what he really is. Do you think something that powerful would let anything happen to your precious little love bumps? No. Claire smiled guiltily, looking down to squeeze Annabelle's hands tightly and stroke the little tattoo that bounded excitedly along the border of their contact. I bet his magic has already been doing its part to make things go smoothly and healthily, even if it was unconscious. Now he's going to be on the case day and night, and you know what that means. The dragoness giggled, her shapely bottom shimmying slightly in anticipation. Mom is going to be so jealous. At least she gets to say she bore his first son. I think it means a lot to her. You dragons, so powerful and so dumb sometimes. Annabelle teased Claire's nails scratched playfully against Bartholomew's exposed belly. You know what I mean. But they're going to be powerful, Annabelle, probably class one, or even, like their dad. I don't know, the thought just hit me as we were coming back with Susan. Is that even possible? Hmm, who would know? I think we'll keep that possibility strictly to the family. Don't you think? Agreed. Do you need any help with dinner? I'm not feeling nauseous or anything. No, I've got Emmy stirring her little ass off to make some caramelized onions, and that's all I need for now. Thanks, though. Annabelle chirped. You could call Haley and Michelle for me and let them know it's about half an hour away if they want to be here while it's hot. Okay, and thanks, Annabelle. I can't wait to return all the support you've given me when you're ready to have children. Haha, don't mention it. Annabelle bumped tips with her friend. Maybe we can time it right and share the experience. I think I'd like that. Claire smiled right back and was about to embellish when everyone in the large apartment was stirred to alertness by a loud, formal rapping on the front door. An one knock like that. Claire, Annabelle, please sit with Susan. Chris was suddenly at their sides, his voice half growl as he strode determinately toward the entrance. It's time I got some damn answers. Neither woman had the chance to object to his potentially rash attitude before he barged past, and one look into the room at Susan sent them scurrying to obey his request. The witch was a nervous wreck. I'm such a fool. Susan's hissed, looking up to meet their worried gaze. Please don't let him get in trouble over my rashness, my mistake. Don't worry. Claire reassured, taking an only slightly nervous seat beside her. She couldn't shake the imagined images of tough, coiling things, those things, dragging her down into musty leaf litter, never to rise again. See, it's just Rayla. I'm sure she's here to check up, to see you're okay. You've been quite the hot topic imaginette this evening, you know? At the front door, Rayla, back in the graceful splendor of her elf form was dismissing her escort and inviting herself in. The apparent nonchalance she displayed must have come from some hidden testicular reserve given the eye daggers thrown her way by Chris. He tended to pose a somewhat intimidating figure these days. Whatever the elf's reason, Susan wasn't consoled by the prospect of a visit from their beneficent leader. I don't care. Don't you see? I betrayed his trust, B.R. Broke something, when I didn't come to him for protection. The witch was on the point of tears now and relieved to unburden her fears to a more understanding audience. He touches me, he smiles, be you, but it doesn't reach his EY, eyes. Annabelle stared down at the bleary-eyed woman she'd known and admired for several years now. She was trying to decide how best to respond how best to snap Susan out of self-pity. Enough! Annabelle shot a hand forward, pushing a finger against Susan's lips as she huddled down to deliver a harsh, and hopefully fruitful truth. Claire joined their little powwow, a surreptitious glance over her shoulder assuring that the elf still had Chris distracted with some long-winded explanation. You did betray his trust, Susan. You betrayed all our trust, bringing danger into our home for poorly thought-out reasons. Susan squeezed her eyes shut, lips moving to form the beginnings of an abject whimper. Ah, I'm not finished. Annabelle scolded quietly internally praying that she wasn't momentarily shish-kebobbed by some ominous witch-wood tendril. What you need to do now is not compound that mistake, but to own it. 
You need to show him, show all of us, that you, that this, Suthazoa, are still worthy of our trust, that you're still the same Susan we all love. And we do love you. Claire added supportively. We don't understand what this means for you, or us yet, but we are here. That is how a brood must function. You need to try to move past this somehow before the rest of us can follow. Annabelle removed her finger, searching her friend's teary eyes. I know it will be difficult, but you have to try. Please, Susan? Okay. Susan whispered hoarsely, gulped, nodded, and looked to each of her broommates with an ember of renewed hope glowing within. Can I have a few days to wallow at least? I mean it all seems pretty blurry and rage-headed when I think back and you let them get away? Chris Rohr rebounded from the living area into the bedroom with all the anger and volume of Belfila's favorite album. That was impressive because the release got banned in seven countries. Chris, no! Annabelle rounded, voicing her horror, as she watched his large hands twitch forward toward the elf with the instinct of violence. She was already rushing forward to restrain him without conscious thought. Immy! Claire! Help me! You promised me protection! The dragon hissed in Rayla's face, his snarl of primal rage almost breaking her steely composure. I cannot tolerate an attack like this! You know that! I do! Rayla lifted her chin proudly. But the syndic! Her explanation halted as, seemingly out of nowhere, an enormously powerful hand closed around her throat. Her eyes darted from the bulging arm cutting off her air up to his rage-filled gaze, marveling in her final moments at the depth of his feeling, his protectiveness, his anger. She should be struggling, fighting tooth, nail, and spell against his ill-considered assault. Shamefully, her arms lay limp at her sides. All she seemed to be able to muster, as she was lifted effortlessly into the air was a hopeless, full-bodied shudder of arousal. Master will put the elf down this instant. A blue streak shot out of the kitchen, flapping jauntily on ever-growing wings. She collided with his broad back, clawed up onto his shoulder and proceeded to beat on the side of his thick skull with an onion-infused spatula. She's. Smack. Just. Thump. Enjoying it. Enough, Chris. Annabelle tugged at his drow-suspending arm, adrenaline radiating through her rushing blood as she reached his side. Think for a moment, Rayla didn't do any of this. Calm down, please. Please, it's my fault. Susan spoke shakily from the doorway to her bedroom, the redhead at her side for support. Her words seemed to sap the dragon's unreasoning fury, and Rayla was dropped unceremoniously to stagger, catch her breath, and rub at her throat. It wasn't Susan. How could it be? Chris asked, hoarse-voiced as Emmy's sticky attempts at discipline ceased. I should have been there to protect you. Then you never, no. Rayla interjected. She coughed, regained her breath, and continued. The syndicate is to blame for all of this, and the failing in Susan's protection is mine. Good lord. Can we just stop it with the stupid pity party? Annabelle's exasperation dripped from every huffed syllable. It doesn't change anything, and you lot sure as hell don't look like it's making anyone feel better about themselves. The guilty parties glanced at Annabelle who seemed to radiate a stern aura of good sense. Chris shrugged shamefully, supposing that she was probably correct. He wasn't feeling any better for having tried to strangle Rayla. He felt wretched. I'm sorry, Rayla. The dragon. I am very angry and frustrated right now. And so you should be. Rayla nodded, accepting the sincerity of his words. Her body still felt weak and rebellious despite having sustained no lasting harm. Her instinct seemed to be flip-flopping alarmingly between the urge to fight and, well, fuck. No one had dared touch her like that in centuries. And it was telling that she... Lady Rayla Narlakis went limp as a kitten under a little of his rough handling. I let the syndicate slip away because it would only hurt us to seek vengeance openly. You cannot. We cannot afford another scene with magic in the open. It is a treacherous path to tread, but I promise I will help you get the retribution your dragon demands. The reward will be all the sweeter, even if it is months or years in the making. That is what I was trying to explain. Ashamed, Chris slowly looked around the room to his brood, meeting their eyes. His draconic anger still simmered fitfully in his chest, but it had cooled from its dangerous boil. He watched the women he loved for assurance for their approval that his impotence wouldn't somehow shame them, especially Susan, the one he had failed so thoroughly. Even little Emmy was silently consulted, panting and splattered with brown onion sauce where she straddled his shoulder. We'll get the bastards eventually. Susan nodded determinately. And I'll be bringing a friend. You'll be bringing a whole dragon's brood. 
Claire grinned savagely beside her, teeth flashing. Smiling a little to see their renewed spirit, Chris startled everyone by turning back to Rayla and sweeping the dark-skinned elf into a tight embrace. He ignored the warm scent of her lust, mustering all the feelings of repentant appreciation he could and pouring them her way. The hug hadn't lasted more than two seconds before Emmy resumed her messy flogging with an indignant, high-pitched shriek. The next few days settled back to contented normalcy for Claire and most of the brood. Of course, that wasn't the case for poor Susan. Understandably tired and emotional, she took several days off work, and they all chipped in as they could to support and keep her company. The witch was distressed to find that her magic seemed diminished to the point of non-existence, fickle to access. Though she'd never been a particularly strong magic user, having the talent almost entirely revoked was a harsh change to stomach. Of course, the repeated and quite unpredictable emergence of the evil-looking vines didn't help assuage that loss. The Suthozoa seemed to unconsciously act on her bidding in some very peculiar, startling ways. Despite their best efforts to hide it, it put most of the brood on edge around her. It was just so, unnatural. Claire couldn't help feeling frightened whenever the dark tendrils shot up out of her skin without warning. It set her dragon's hackles up, reaching for the comfort of her beautiful fire to defend herself with scorching heat. The first time it happened, they'd all been happily at breakfast. Susan swore it was subconscious, but when she pointed to the fruit bowl and asked Petra to pass a banana, they blossomed right out of her arm. Baleful, sturdy, and very fast, they twined weightlessly through the air across a gap of at least three meters to snatch the yellow fruit back to her hand. Stunned silence reigned in the aftermath, all eyes at the table fixed warily on the disbelieving witch. Susan looked up into a sea of mistrustful, frightened faces and fled to her room, mortified. Chris was phenomenal, Claire thought. He couldn't spare much time away from his work, but it seemed that barely an hour went by without a quiet pop announcing his arrival by ether. Only staying for a few soft words of reassurance, or a gentle touch before he was gone again. He coaxed her to show him her vines, to embrace and explore the strange new instincts that now bloomed within her. In his words, he was just as devoted as ever to loving her, to have her happy and healthy, weird tentacle shit and all all.to the dragoness and the rest of the brood, watching him pamper her in every way he could was like catnip to a bunch of frisky felines. The smell of arousal was thick in the air, driving him to ever more epic feats of refractory superiority. Notably, Susan didn't receive any of that sort of attention. He seemed to be avoiding her bed for some reason. Claire thought that was a mistake. In combination with Susan's new condition, his reticence embarrassed the witch so that she wouldn't have dared voice any desires she might have had. This was where his platitudes fell short. It was clear, to his brood at least, that for whatever reason he chose not to be sexually intimate with Susan, it didn't help her emotional recovery at all. As Annabelle had predicted though, he was on Claire like a maddened billy goat. For a few days at least, the fresh knowledge that two of his children grew inside her seemed to drive him into some sort of sex fever. She actually had to turn him away into the arms of her other broommates for fear of sparking a mutiny. Though reluctant to admit it, for a while there, he was so enthusiastic that Claire was left sore by his visits to her bedroom. It was hard to believe he outstripped her ability to self-heal, but even a dragoness needed some respite. At times it seemed like she'd barely dozed off with his warm deposit still seeping lazily out of her before he was back, snuffling, and growling, and prodding at her in his lust. She'd always struggled a little with his size after that fateful transformation. It had been a quiet point of pride that her natural dragon physiology let her please him just the way she was, without an enchantment. She certainly wasn't about to admit that she needed one, when Petra could be heard screaming for more, and harder, through two solid walls. Her mother seemed to accommodate him so, vigorously. Really, it would have been fine. He was usually so sweet and gentle with her in her human form, unless she asked for something else. Except that in the wake of their joyous discovery he was so damn happy and lustful. Claire found she didn't have the heart to turn him away nearly as much as perhaps she should have, and it was joyous. Claire embraced the knowledge wholeheartedly now, her beautiful baby girls. They were half the reason he wouldn't leave her be to recover, that much was obvious. She could sense his urgency to flood the three of them, a mother dragon and two babes, with whatever magic they could possibly need to develop safely, perfectly. His growls in her ear as she shuddered through waves of bliss all but demanded nothing less of her, spurting as he was, powerful and hot, and deep inside that he was just overdoing it a little, and could she blame her mate for that? Her dragon certainly didn't think so. After one such glorious bout of lovemaking, he made a surprising declaration. As Claire clutched a glowing crystal between her breasts, 
draining away some of the electrifying excess, he told her that he had a celebration planned for just the two of them. He wouldn't say more, other than that he wanted to do something special for her in return for doubling his happiness. It was maddening and sweet, typical of her Chris, her mate. She did worry a little about how hard he was working though. He never complained, but if it wasn't Michelle or Lillian calling him to escort someone, or sit in on a briefing, or undergo training, he doggedly returned to the mysterious construction site. Something had lit a fire under his cute ass about getting their home finished, and it didn't take a genius to figure out what. More than once though, she noted wryly that he couldn't be getting that much done if he found so many chances to rut with her. His reassurances that their home was very near to completion only increased the demands for information Haley received, and Claire was as guilty as any other of his brood. Unfortunately, the little blonde minx was stoically tight-lipped and hard to track down, deeply engrossed in her own projects. Over the week, Claire spent much of her spare time researching everything she could about monozygotic pregnancy. Dr. Chan had been correct. She was fortunate her little girls had parted ways so early. Things got progressively more dangerous even after a few days. She went on to read about parenting twins and the challenges involved, a fascinating subject in its own right. Her work was certainly cut out for her as a first-time mom, that was for sure. With Chris on the sexual warpath, she and Petra refilled a lot of crystals. Rayla's diamond was returned to her by the end of the second day, brimming with renewed, vital magic. Their regular clients were politely screaming for replacements. The days of delayed production from his time in Brazil and the losses to the syndicate thugs were eventually made up. That was when they discovered another problem, where to stash their growing hoard of treasure, in exchange for filled crystals, they mostly accepted good old greenbacks. They were relatively easy to manage, spending at any human store and most magical establishments in the Bean District. It was the assorted gold, silver, and precious stones that were starting to accumulate dot up to that point, Susan had simply been dumping the inconvenient and heavy earnings in an old gym bag in the back of her closet. But with Susan at home, Claire and Petra took over the actual selling and collection down at Edwards, and promptly came across a problem. Everyone was surprised when Susan directed them to the bag and they found they could barely lift the thing. It had ripped down one of its seams, the treasure within bulging as if to escape something lurking within. The witch admitted to not having looked inside for a while, but she swore up and down they couldn't have taken nearly that much in the short time they'd been selling crystals. Ever the practical problem solvers, mother and daughter dragon went down to a big box store and purchased the weight scales and a lot of Tupperware, prepared to wade into the treasure in the valiant cause of organization. In truth, two pregnant dragoness needed no excuse to tackle the task. They were almost purring audibly at the proximity of such a quantity of precious stones and metals. They spent a pleasant afternoon together with Susan, sorting, weighing, dividing, and labeling their treasure. It was delightful for the two dragonesses, who had never even come close to such a hoard let alone have it flow through their fingers. The gold especially seemed to sing and resonate to their magic. Petra even admitted, a little sheepishly, that touching it made her mouth water and other parts of her moistened too, near the bottom of the bag, they finally found the explanation for their unexpected wealth. Two black velvet wrapped ounce bars of dragon gold had been hidden in there for months. It practically reeked of their mate's energy when separated from the other treasure's insulating, absorbing influence. It had been magically infusing, multiplying their wealth all that time. Petra, of course, had one of the little bars out in a flash, rubbing it against her bare skin with a low grumble of dragon satisfaction. The culprit, when he showed up from work, was dragged into the other apartment by both dragonesses, and didn't emerge for hours. Given the simultaneous cries of feminine pleasure that emanated from within, his curious brood assumed Chris was being given a special, double dragoness reward. Ever the gentleman, Chris gifted his mates the two bars that had inflamed them so creatively. Then he meekly asked if it might be possible to sell some of their regular hoard because he was making himself bankrupt buying construction material and high-end fittings. Petra and Claire called him all sorts of endearing names that belittled his common sense, and of course, agreed. The entire episode led to an interesting brood council meeting to discuss their finances over roast lamb leg meal that evening. It was a complicated mess. Almost everyone had their own bank accounts or small, hidden treasure troves. Chris, through Annabelle, had all the while been paying the lion's share of the group's shared expenses such as food and entertainment from his BIE salary. He'd also traded a fair portion of his dragon gold to Rayla in order to purchase supplies for their new home. That money was now running low again, even after Stephen agreed to work the remainder of the job on barter, in exchange for Chris' magical assistance with future projects. Claire, Annabelle, Petra, 
and Susan were all for a complete merger of assets. Haley lent her support to that group when push, but said she didn't feel she deserved much say in the matter yet. Her inclusion as a brood member was yet to be consummated, and she had no appreciable assets to contribute. Emmy noted cheekily that Haley had inherited at two rather enviable impressive assets from her mother, much to the group's amusement. Michelle wished to stay financially independent, quoting career and legal reasons. The Sprite Princess didn't know what her standing was with the remaining royalty of her species and therefore didn't want to entangle them with any of that stupid fuss by officially joining the growing movement for merged wealth. Lillian enigmatically said she couldn't discuss the details of her finances at the moment, but to go ahead and do whatever without her. That got raised eyebrows from everyone. She elaborated, after much prodding, that she was filthy rich and would be open to being convinced to contribute to just about any reasonable outlays the brood required. Michelle took the bait and haggled away her next night with Chris for a tidy $15,000. As everyone else gawked, she laughed that never in her wildest dreams would she have imagined getting paid so much to not have sex with someone. Lillian had a similar moment, laughing heartily that she, of all people, would never have thought to pay for sex. Chris just shook his head. Overall, the issue was left unresolved for the time being. Claire and Annabelle agreed to seek advice from someone in the community who had experience in such matters. That left them with a gym bag trove to discuss, and its ownership. Chris admitted he had a use for some of it in his slowly progressing ring-crafting project, especially the gemstones. He was adamant though that it didn't belong to him, and wasn't his to use or borrow without consent. Several attempts to change his perspective had to be stubbornly weathered before his point of view was grudgingly accepted. The three crystalliers all thought that was stupid, and that Chris should use what he needed, whenever he wanted. At the least, he should sell whatever it took to finish the house. Lillian also agreed to provide financial aid for the building project, but Annabelle put her foot down when the vampire angled toward getting the rights to break in the place. Susan generously demurred at that point, suggesting that since precious stones and metals were the purview of dragons, and Petra and Claire were so clearly enamored by them, they should have whatever remained of the horde. Touched, the dragonesses accepted, promising Susan that her generosity would be returned to. Fold. Before now, Claire hadn't really developed much of her own hoard outside a nice collection of jewelry. Her father had kept a small chest full of ancient golden coins, she remembered playing amongst them with him as one of her earliest memories. They had been lost when he was killed though, fighting the hunters to secure her safe escape with Petra. Certainly she'd never owned anything that felt so right, so warm and comforting to her dragon as the small bar of Chris' personal gold. Now she owned a half share in a bulging sports bag's worth of real treasure, treasure she had helped earn with her mate and brood sisters. Suddenly rich, happily fuck-tired, pregnant, and loved on all sides, the young dragoness had never felt so content. She gently toyed with the little bar he'd given her that afternoon, smiling softly as it pressed more firmly against her skin. It had found a new home recently, perhaps less productive, but no less appreciated, tucked down the side of her brazier against the softness of her right tit. She just loved the feel of it. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Remind me again why I agreed to be your accomplice in breaking and entering, intimidation, and God knows what else you're going to cook up. Lisa complained as Chris hopped around the BIA armory locker room on one huge purple, clawed hybrid foot, trying to pull on a pair of reluctant red Santa pants. This is going to be fun. Don't be such a stick in the mud. Cat Jackson stifled a giggle as the dragon crashed sidelong into a locker with an enormous bang that seemed to reverberate around the room. Ouch, my wink. Chris groaned as he righted himself, the ruffled appendage twitching fitfully. Both women burst out laughing, unable to help themselves. Come here, you big lump. Cat said, ducking under the hazard of a purple wing to kneel beside him and tease his foot through first one leg and then another. It's your toe claws, they're catching on the fabric. Cat stood, beaming a cheeky smile as she handed over the velvety red slacks for him to cinch above his boxer shorts. The fluffy white cuffs looked absolutely ridiculous where they ended, halfway on his bulging, purple calf muscles. It tickles. Chris shivered, and used to the sensation of such soft, baggy cloth against his skin. It almost felt like he wasn't wearing anything, then goosed him every time he moved. Big baby. Cat smiled, picking up the BIA's largest, custom-made Kevlar vest out of his locker and slapped it into his chest. Think you can handle the rest or do you need help putting on all your clothes? Well, of course I need help. It's the pants I thought I could handle. He sighed. Wings you know? Otherwise known as dragon flappers, sky flippers, and in my special case, shirtsbane. 
Fine, turn around. She had to duck under of one of said problematic wings, and its clawed fingertips as he did so. Slowly. Careful with those things in here, you could take an eye out. Sorry. Sorry. Chris said sheepishly, knowing he needed to turn cautiously with his wings out. What's the hold up down here? Michelle asked from the doorway, a little breathless from her hurried dash down three flights of stairs. I heard a great big crash all the way up on the ground floor. The Santa suit wasn't cooperating. Chris grinned over his shoulder as Cat began strapping up his vest. It was a tight fit for his wings, but once it was on, their densely muscled forelimbs slotted into purpose-built holes in the vest's back. It was probably the spirit of St. Nicholas reaching out from the grave to express his disgust. Lisa grumbled as she laced up a pair of sturdy black boots over dark fatigues. Boss, do I have to wear the elf getup? It's bad enough with just him. Do we really need to defile the spirit of Christmas any further with a pair of wicked, pistol-toting elves? Absolutely. Michelle laughed. It's the elf tunic and hat over your balaclava or I'll find you a pair of angel's wings to wear instead. It amuses me greatly. Ungriff. Lisa let out a wordless cry of frustration and stormed out of the room to collect her pistols. What's got her so riled up? Chris asked furtively as once she was gone. Girl hasn't been getting laid since her FBI boyfriend dumped her last week. Kat suggested as she helped slip the loose red shirt around Chris's shoulders and wing joints. An army of safety pins would have to do, closing slits he'd cut for his wings. Oh. Who the hell would dump Lisa? An idiot. Huh. Any problems with this on your end, Kat? Michelle turned back to them after watching the short brunette storm off. I know this little mission isn't exactly kosher, but I'm squared away, boss. Haven't gone out for a while, and I understand there's a vampire nightclub involved. And it might actually be fun getting to see Santa here decide who's been naughty or nice. I'm afraid your targets have all been quite naughty. Think you can handle that, Santa? Get creative, but please don't kill anyone or somehow traumatize any kids you come across. Chris hurried to strap the fluffy white beard in place around his ears and tug on his floppy cap before turning to reply. Yes, ma'am. He snapped his most comical salute yet, drawing a snicker from Lisa as she returned just in time to catch the absurd scene. Okay, that's sort of cute, but I hope you know we're all going straight to hell for this. She stifled her humor as they all smiled at her, attempting to hold on to her sour mood. Costumes, elves! Chris barked commandingly at his two tactically black-clad companions for the evenings. A special hell. Lisa muttered rebelliously as she donned the forest green tunic over her body armor, covering any insignia from view. Michelle smiled indulgently at the merry band. A year ago, if she'd been told she was going to organize something so ridiculous and illegal, she would have laughed. Now she laughed for those very same reasons. It was illegal, ridiculous, and unfortunately necessary. Good luck out there, team. I'll be monitoring your targets for any changes in disposition, and I'm always just a phone call away, remember. Be back by 2am, or I'll have to suggest that Rayla turn you into pumpkins. But she... Chris grinned at his newest mate's antics. Ah, pumpkins. I guess we'd better make a start then. Ready to depart, Chris held out draconian purple hands to Lisa and Kat. Both women had gotten over their wariness of his abilities by now, so there wasn't any hesitation. His magic reached to envelop them as they vanished from that plane of existence and into the ether. There was barely enough time for the women to register the change before they were racing incorporeally toward the northeast. With their patterns magically preserved, their bodies fractured into subatomics to stream toward the dragon's destination through his shadow-filled realm. They fell through cold, thin air for only a moment, merging back above a dark, snowy forest. Cat hooped as her stomach dropped away, but Lisa scrabbled to cling to his side. His intention shaped the ether around them as they fell, the effect propagating into the norm so their bodies slid safely down into the bottom of a barely perceptible sphere. Don't do that, Chris! The brunette at his side beat at his arm once they were safely on their way out across Lake Michigan. I need some warning. Dragon eyes alert for obstacles, Chris brought them in low across the water, passing effortlessly through buffeting snow flurries in the dark. The lake's edge was well lit, homes blanketing the night-shrouded shores with tiny sparks. Chicago's hazy brilliance fell away to the south as they sped onward. Up and over Michigan they raced, skirting north of Detroit and briefly over the border into Canadian airspace before crossing back above Cleveland. They recrossed the water then, hugging the south shore of Lake Erie. Eastward bound now, they flew over land once more to avoid that whole Niagara Falls cluster of settlement. 
As he cut north once more and slowed, Kat took out her phone and began guiding him in on their destination with a military-grade GPS application. Even at night, the view over the lake as they alighted atop the wooded mansion was exquisite. Crisp snow lay on the ground and perched on bare boughs in a thin sheet. It had stopped falling for now, but the clouds they'd passed on the way threatened more from the west. The place must be amazing in the warmer months. Chris could wistfully imagine an idyllic summer spent lounging on expansive, perfectly manicured lawns and cooling off by the lake. Heck, if the lake wasn't good enough, there was an enormous pool out back. That was the sort of decadence their first target took for granted on a daily basis. There are fifteen damn chimneys. Cat whispered. This place is fucking huge. I know. Michelle says these guys are like the one percent of one percenters. Chris acknowledged in a quiet rumble. Okay, balaclavas and elf hats on please, ladies. The last thing we want is you two being identified. That could be a real career ender. What about your career? Lisa frumped half-heartedly in a final attempt to derail the crazy mission. I feel sort of bad gloating about it, Lisa, but I've got options. Despite my current appearance, I'm sure I could land a gig at McDonald's, or maybe even a cushy mall security. His arm thumped meatily again as it was reintroduced to a small, but well-practiced fist. Um, I hate you. Lisa whisper hissed as Kat stifled a chuckle on his other side. At least they'd never let you be Santa again. Ouch, workplace harassment. Cat, save me? Okay, you two, stop goofing around. The ex-marine murmured. Never thought I'd have to act the babysitter when I signed up for this job. All right, then. Chris sobered, focusing on the unsavory task ahead. He didn't want to be out doing this when he could be snuggled up to a warm, soft body. Someone had to shoulder-check the Rikers, though. Follow my lead. I can see really well in the dark. It should just be a matter of standing there and looking menacing, really. But I guess if you feel inspired or I'm botching the job, by all means, join the charade. Ready? Yeah. Lisa grumbled quietly as she pulled the thin layer of finely woven dark wool over her face. The hated pointed green hat went on top, completing the image like a maraschino on a Sunday. I can't believe it, but yeah. No wonder Kevin dumped me. There's too much sneaking around in my new job. Fuck him. Cat encouraged softly. This is probably one of the biggest plates of justice you've served up in your entire career, even if it isn't through the courts. Let's do this. Chris retook their hands, giving each a gentle squeeze before he pulled the three of them into the ether once more. With the harrowing experience at the White House fresh in his memory, he was wary of new territory. For several seconds he stood stock still, assessing the surrounding landscape. His purple illumination cast the rooftops in an uncanny hue, throwing long half-shadows in the light that never seemed to illuminate as far as it should. Cat and Lisa were just starting to fidget before he was happy that they were more or less safe. He pulled the three of them down, through the slight resistance of roof, insulation, attic, and ceiling until they stood in a no-doubt richly appointed hallway. Details lost their splendor in the gray scale and bleaching purple permeation. That's not right. Lisa was breathing heavily as they settled on their feet, a little yelp escaping her lips when they actually touched firmly rather than sinking through as they'd done before. It's all in your head. Chris reassured her. Well, my head anyway. You're safe here with me, Lisa. I know that, but what if you decided we were going to sink into the earth? She turned her black-masked face to him. It's fucking weird, all right? All right. He grinned beneath his fake, fluffy beard, letting go of their hands to make a placating gesture. I promise I will try to keep the weirdness to a minimum. Now let's go drop in on Philip. In a bedroom at the end of one of the mansion's wings, they found their target tucked snugly into bed beside a mature blonde beauty. On their journey through the house, they noted the presence of several other residents. Whether or not they were also members of the Riker family, they weren't sure, but there was no doubt that this was the head of the household. They came out of the ether-like silent, Christmas wraiths, ready to deliver dark tidings to the man on Michelle's naughty list. The bedroom was vast, boasting a view of the lake on one side, and the sprawling garden and pool on the other. Chris took a few moments to stare down at the peacefully snoring old man before the show truly started. His subject was lean, gray hair seeming to somehow retain a dignified pose despite the down pillow's best efforts. As Chris stood over the bed, he heard his backup team quietly taking positions by the door and overlooking the window which was providing most of their dim illumination. The blonde, he assumed Philip's wife, Vanessa, had a fetching grace about her features. She must have been stunning in her prime and was probably a good decade or more younger than her husband. Her sleeping brow was pinched into a fretful fro 
Perhaps sensing the proximity of danger, Chris wasn't thrilled about her presence, but if she heard the warning he was about to deliver too, maybe her husband would have a harder time ignoring it. That would be to both their benefits. Indeed, Vanessa must have somehow sensed the scrutiny of the malevolent nighttime visitor because her eyelids slowly fluttered open. Confused for a moment, they grew wide as she saw the red and white clad giant looming above her, lit only by dim light spilling in from the dark window. I know I'm a little early, Vanessa. Chris channeled the dragon's deep rumble, doing nothing to fight the sibilance from his split tongue and sharpened teeth. But I'm here to spread the season's tidings to your husband. We don't want him getting a switch from me this Christmas, do we? He saw the exact moment she realized he wasn't human. With the yellowish light trickling in from the garden fixtures outside, intent eyes darted to his wings, to the purple hands sticking out of his Santa suit. There was no scream, no hint of existential crisis on her quickly composed face. She knew. Chris was gratified that his senses let him see she wasn't entirely stone cold. Her hand was trembling slightly as she reached to shake her husband awake. The scent reaching his nose becoming richer with fear and the first hints of sweat. She was scared all right, but she hid it well. Her husband mumbled a wordless protest as she prodded him, turning his head deeper into the warmth of the pillow. Vanessa was loath to take her eyes of the huge creature Santa thing to wake him, silently cursing whatever scheme he'd gotten involved in that brought something like this crawling out of the woodwork and into their bedroom in the middle of the night. Vanessa found her husband's ear and twisted vindicatively. Wake up, Philip. You have a visitor. Ouch, woman. Philip shot up with a cry of pain, unwittingly making the dragon take a step away from the bed so he wasn't headbutted in the chest. A visitor? Who? What time is it? Why don't you ask him? She pointed, pulling her nightgown tighter around her as she shuffled back against the oak headboard. Why don't I? Oh, fuck me. Philip's voice trailed off as he saw their bedroom guest. Hello, Philip. Chris smiled toothily, though the effect was probably lost in the tickly curls of his ridiculous white beard. He let his wings twitch, extending ominously to about half-width before settling with the dry, leathery rustle of tiny scales. Tell me. Which of my lists do you think your name is on? Naughty or nice? Jesus Christ, you're one of them. Philip scuttled backward on the bed, trying to organize his mind into something resembling composure. It settled on old, comfortable routines, drilled into permanent memory by years spent sparring across the negotiation table or the aisle of a courtroom. I... I don't know who or what you think you are, breaking into my house in the middle of the night, but you're in a world of trouble, buddy. If you lay a hand on us there will be serious repercussions, I know some very powerful people. Besides, don't you folks have rules against showing yourselves to good, honest people? Chris chuckled, so he wasn't going to crumble easily. Philip, Philip, Philip. Chris turned and sat casually on the side of the bed, close enough to maintain the immediate threat. You are either good nor honest. This is disappointing. Why would I get in trouble for showing myself when you are obviously so well informed already? I'm just here to deliver a message. There's no need to. Listen, pal. If you want to get a message to me, pick up the damn phone. Philip was finding his breath now, channeling his indignation at being so rudely awoken. Channeling some fear too, if he was honest. Break into my home dressed as Santa Claus, will you? Well, that's a big mistake. You don't want to mess with my family. We have the sort of connections you couldn't begin to comprehend. Hell, we're the fucking foundation of this nation, and we own a good chunk of it. I will personally see you locked up or buried unless you're out of my... Philip, stop running your big mouth before you get us killed. Vanessa was gobsmacked at her husband's temerity. Couldn't he feel the danger this winged man represented? For starters, he was huge. His purple hands looked like they could crush her skull like an egg if they didn't tear her to shreds with their short talons. It was all very well to plot or use those connections her husband spoke of if it was necessary, but not while they were actually at his mercy. Here was their first real encounter with a wild being, capable of who knew what and her husband fell back on threats and bluster. I'd listen to your wife, Phil. Chris hid his awoken rage behind a steel-hardened, controlled voice. The man wasn't lying about his connections or wealth and willingness to use them. That was the problem. I've already been on the receiving end of your family's morally bankrupt idea of acceptable behavior, that's why I'm here. Did your brother, Patrick, tell you about how he hired thugs to kidnap me at gunpoint? How his men shot one of my mates in the head with a suppressed rifle? How he planned to keep me sedated indefinitely for his lab rats to gnaw at. Oh God, you're him. Vanessa's hands reached to cover her mouth, sure now that they were about to be executed. 
Who? Chris sneered. The one who finally raised enough red flags to shut you down. It's not like mine was an isolated case. Look, damn it. Look, I didn't agree with Patrick's actio. You didn't stop him. The dragon roared, lunging forward into the man's face. At a concerned throat clearing from Lisa, he lowered his voice. Vanessa squeaked, realizing for the first time that there were more people lurking in the shadows. Which jail do I find him in? Chris continued more reservedly, but with no less venom in his voice. His fangs tingled in an entirely new way now, preparing a dose of life-ending toxins for this worm of a creature. Where is he serving his multi-lifetime sentence for kidnapping and attempted murder, Philip? You're in charge of this substantial empire. Did you at least cut his access to your family's funds and resources? Well, Philip's heart was pounding as the dragon's strange eyes bored into him at close range. He could have cursed his brother at that moment. It's not that simple. I save it. Chris sighed, leaning back. He stood and walking over to look out the big window in an attempt to calm down. He was too involved. They needed to bounce on out of here soon, especially after shouting like that. Save your bullshit justifications and your privilege. I caught up with Patrick in Sardinia. After a little convincing, he agreed to disappear, to not cause any more trouble for your family or mine. There was silence behind him, and Chris wondered if he'd overplayed his hand in front of Kat and Lisa. The implication of Patrick's murder was certainly there between the lines. He couldn't worry about that just now, perhaps they would understand. No, not Lisa anyway. Momentarily distracted by that worry, his mind wandered to the scene below the window, the backyard garden and frigid pool. An interesting idea was born, drawing him back to the present situation. Outside, one of his dark orbs materialized effortlessly. Your brother was quite helpful, actually. Chris turned back to his audience with renewed purpose. Magic is such a wonderful thing, sometimes I really think we should all take a dose of truth syrup with breakfast every morning. The world would be a very different place. Anyway, I've gone and gotten distracted when I was really here to deliver a simple message. Which is? I have my eye on your family and your rich friends, Philip Riker. My people are in your finances, in your emails and private servers. Patrick gave us everything. This is your one chance to clean up your act and back away from beings peacefully. You're threatening me? The old emperor growled when his domain was in jeopardy. You've just admitted to enough to put you away for decades. That's the thing, Phil. You and your ilk aren't playing by the rules, are you? Why should you get to fall back to that protection when it suits? It boils down to this. If I catch another whiff of your family or company stepping out, acting on knowledge they shouldn't have, or even general douchebaggery, I will rain magical hell down on it all. I will start dismantling industrial facilities. There will be mysterious, expensive accidents, equipment, and industrial plant will vanish overnight. I'll damage property until your insurers run for the hills and your employees scream that they can't come into work. And most importantly, I will hold you personally responsible for it, Philip, for all of your substantial empire. Now hold on just a minute, I can't be held responsible for the actions of an incorporated company. That's just not how it works. Try. Me. Chris spat disdainfully. Who are you going to run crying to? What's more, after the revelation I will do my best to make sure you don't get the access to the magic you've already started to plan for. I will start shouting how your brother kidnapped little werewolf kids to run sick experiments on under your watch. How many witches will agree to work with your pharmaceutical interests then? Alright, I get the point, damn it. Philip ground out through his teeth, seething with impotent anger. I can see you're not getting the message. You probably think you're going to make a few phone calls after I'm gone and I'll cease being a problem. Chris shook his head sadly as a tick in the man's reddened cheek suggested that was exactly what he'd planned. It's not a good idea. You've been moving your chess pieces around here and there, dipping your toes into the magical world and assuming it's all business as usual. It's not. It's a mistake to think you can hide behind lawyers and money when there's a vengeful pack of werewolves after your family. A vengeful pair of dragons, a vampire, a sprite, a witch, and an Annabelle will be far worse. Talk some sense into him, would you, Vanessa? I'll. I'll try. The quiet woman nodded. She put a restraining hand on her husband's shoulder but it was shrugged away. Oh, and stop shorting the stock market. The revelation is going to be hard enough without you trying to profit on everyone else's chaos and upset. Chris knew he was getting carried away again now but he couldn't help it. Spread the word amongst all your insider trading circle jerkers on that. Besides, it's just dumb to think people won't be looking for that shit afterwards. 
Pay your damn share of taxes while you're at it too. No wonder there's a huge deficit. For fuck's sake, man, look around. You. Have. Enough. Money. You're done? Is that all? Chris' eyes narrowed dangerously. He wanted to tear off the stupid beard and hat and scream at the stubborn man. No, actually, I was hoping you were smart enough to take a hint without needing a demonstration. I guess not. He glanced at Kat and Lisa, stoic as ever, and held out his hands. As they came to him in the dark, he pulled them close and extended his wings protectively above their heads. With a rasping, creaking shriek of splintering wood and crumbling masonry, his orb bit into the side of the bedroom. Chris coaxed its bloated, two-meter diameter slowly into the room, not wanting to have the roof collapse or dangerous chunks go flying off in any direction. It also had the added benefit letting him watch the uncertainty on his audience's face grow to apprehension, and finally terror.it floated ominously over the end of the bed, black and terrible to the uninitiated. Vanessa whimpered, glancing between it and the perfectly round hole in her bedroom wall that was now letting the bitterly cold night air tear at her nightgown. Feeling vindictive, Chris let it trail through the bedding and mattress, consuming everything in its path. It advanced on them to the discordant sound of pinging springs. Worrying that they might try to bolt or touch the orb, Chris pulled it back a little, letting them see what it had done. What are you doing, man? Stop it! Philip's voice finally had a satisfying note of fright in it. I'll do it. Jesus Christ, I'll do it. I'll keep you to that, Philip. Just remember, next time it will be half the lake, from a few hundred feet up. W. What? Chris dropped his hold on that locus of ether in his mind's eye. A four-ton sphere of freezing pool water and the atomized remnants of a wall seemed to hang in midair for a timeless moment. Then it fell, crashing into the remnants of the bed and dispersing in a miniature tidal wave. The terrified pair were caught up and swept, spluttering and bedraggled onto the floor. Ho, ho, ho! Chris bellowed for all the house to hear, pulling his elves into the ether right before the frigid torrent could splash onto their feet. Vanessa and Philip Riker were left gasping, shivering, and wiping their eyes clear in their flooded, ruined bedroom. Finding themselves inexplicably alone, they quickly broke into a heated argument until the cold wind blowing through the gaping hole drove them splashing to wake the household and find a warm shower. Philip was, understandably in his mind but apparently not in his wife's, hopping mad. The confrontation with the being left him uncharacteristically shaken and disgusted for it. He was used to respect and deference from all sides, especially from those who actually understood his incalculable wealth. He was supposed to be untouchable, beyond rich and with the connections to do just about anything if he was smart. How dare some kid from Denver come into his house and pull a stunt like that. Oh, he knew all about Christopher Barrist. It was too bad his brother had acted on that half-cooked tip before they'd gotten the full picture about the young dragon. He never would have agreed to that course of action if he'd known the risks, if he'd known the kid was already working with the government. If Patrick had truly spilled the beans like the dragon claimed, it was bad, bad news. Come to think of it, he hadn't heard from his overly ambitious brother in a while. It wasn't until he was once more dressed, overseeing his bleary-eyed staff as they attempted to mop up the flooding, that he realized the validity of the dragon's threat. It was their half-curious, half-fearful glances that did it. These were good, subservient people who had worked for his family for decades. Suddenly, they were looking at him for answers he couldn't rightly give. He would sound like he'd gone mad if he said a dragon broke in, threatened him, and somehow dumped half his pool through a perfect hole in the wall. Extrapolating, his frown deepened. He realized that in the back of his mind he'd been assuming he would call the local sheriff, whose campaign he donated very generously to, get him down here to look at the damage, and point him in Chris's direction. But that was dumb, only raising more unanswerable questions from people who wouldn't keep their mouths shut. Shit, what were the contractors going to say when they came to patch up the wall? He would have to get a team of specialists out from New York to repair the damage, that would be expensive. You didn't get as rich as he was without inheriting a well-established dynasty or two, and then being miserly for most of your life. Finally, he caught a glimpse of the dragon's threat, and it was a doozy. His family's holdings were truly vast. There was no way he could hope to defend them from the sort of industrial sabotage he'd been threatened with. Factories, mines, and distribution centers were prohibitively expensive if they had to be shut down for repairs. And who would he complain to? The AG? The president? His brother's actions and subsequent flight had already put him on the shit list with just about everyone who was politically invested in the revelation. He might have the political clout to make the dragon's life somehow uncomfortable, 
but not without coming off as petty and vindictive. No, it would burn too many bridges and paint a bullseye on himself for more magical bullshit. That left him essentially two options. Hire a few professionals to take care of the problem for good, or buckle down and make his family actually behave themselves. He knew which he wanted to choose, but it wasn't the smart choice. There was too much risk, too much exposure, and too much chance of failure. The other was essentially a slap on the wrist, and back to business as usual. He smiled wickedly when he realized that. It was the same damn deal they always gave his ilk after misbehaving. Magic be damned, Philip Riker was still fucking untouchable. Chris, Lisa, and Kat still planned to visit three other individuals of dubious character before they retired to avoid the pumpkin curfew. With the head of the Riker family behind them, Chris' concern was that their upcoming hunt in New York would upset some local being. He was probably supposed to register his activity with the relevant territory lords or their representatives in the cities they visited, but that would have taken so long. Paperwork and meet and greets sounded like a terrible idea to Chris. Essentially announcing his business to everyone in the process seemed worse. Better to ask forgiveness afterward. So the three of them slunk downstate toward the diffuse glow in the sky, relying on Chris' speed to keep them ahead of any prying magical eyes. Catherine rode motorcycles, and it seemed that racing around the night sky in a magical construct fulfilled at least some of the same rush. She was almost as exuberant as a kid let out trick or treating for the first time. Lisa wasn't particularly happy with him after his little spat with the head of the Riker family, but she warmed back up during their second stop. They caught up with Damien Goodall in his Upper East Side apartment. As the holder of one of Patrick's supposed insurance policies, Michelle was keen to keep him silent. The Riker family's fixer lawyer was also their go-between for most things magical. That didn't come from their government connections anyway. Somehow, this resourceful lawyer had stumbled across Roman, a younger vampire who dabbled in high-end drug dealing and apparently a little infobrokering. Damien didn't take much convincing to see the merits of their point of view. It might have had something to do with the two lines of Columbia's finest they found him inhaling on his kitchen bench, in preparation for an evening of clubbing.it was so easy. Chris thought it was almost unsporting. With only a Yuletide-themed implication of a good old-fashioned defenestration, he was a convert. Perhaps his existing contact with beings preconditioned him to quick acquiescence. Maybe it was the general insanity of Christmas cheer which accompanied every syllable of Chris' address this time, an attempt on the dragon's part to dispel the cloud hanging over Lisa's pointy green hat. Whatever the case, Damien declined to step into thin air for a ride in Santa's sleigh, despite assurances from the two helpful elves that it really was there and simply an invisible sleigh. Everyone knew that, didn't they? How else was good Saint Nick supposed to get around in this day and age of cell phone cameras? Chris would be grading Kat's performance down for the evil snicker she couldn't contain toward the end. Almost as an afterthought, they mentioned the tens of millions of dollars owed to the IRS that Michelle had uncovered. The man had a gift with tax evasion, and neither he nor the Rikers were squeamish about the morality of his skill set. Combined with the threat to refer his suspect finances and lifestyle to the relevant authorities, it made for a compelling argument. Damien Goodall was left a reformed and very confused man. Through one of Lillian's contacts, they next caught up with Roman at a private party barely more than ten blocks away. Business must have been booming for the vampire. The evidence of rich youngsters icing their noses was scattered all around the huge penthouse suite. Some were obviously underage and drinking, or smoking, or dancing the night away under the influence of something. Chris felt suddenly very mature in the presence of his age peers. They dabbled their little brains away. But here he was at nineteen, out tracking down high-end lowlives for his evening fun. He worried about Susan all the while, but they partied on like the sun wasn't going to come up in a few short hours. Perhaps it was his sheltered country upbringing or his imminent fatherhood, but he realized the world was forcing him to grow up quickly. These kids clearly lived in a different magical world to his. It was a world where they were kept sheltered from the serious worries of everyday life by vast sums and family lawyers. He had to admit, with its noble bodies, thumping music, and carefree spirit, this party had its own certain enticing charm. It was the most potentially dangerous of their meetings for Lisa and Kat, so they were cautious. Together, the three observed the goings-on of the party from the safety of the ether. There was some sort of unusual arrangement with Roman, the dealer. He seemed to be holding, handling, and dispensing to the revelers on demand. There wasn't an exchange of money, he just rolled joints or produced pills and gave them away. Lisa seemed to think it must be some sort of drugs as a service scheme, where the vampire was paid in advance to show up with a cocktail of illegal delights. It was quite clever actually, 
none of the partygoers ever had to handle quantities or exchange currency. Roman's services were in demand, so it was a while before they found their chance. He exited a bedroom where he'd been administering some sort of hedonistic ritual of intoxicated debauchery. Pungent smoke billowed out when the door opened to disgorge him and his satchel of party favors. In the temporarily deserted hallway, the vampire actually squeaked when a heavy hand landed on his neck from behind. His startled cry was cut short as he was dragged into the ether. Lisa was standing back, ready to support with drawn pistol if necessary. Cat almost bounced at Chris's side with her nightstick in one hand and a small silver ingot gripped tightly in her other fist. Chris was prepared to fight a Lillian-strong opponent into submission. Roman did put up a few seconds of valiant squirming but Chris was astonished by the difference a few extra centuries made to a vampire's strength. Despite his sinuous, wiry physique the guy was a comparative pipsqueak next to what the dragon was used to from his undead mate. That was a lesson well learned if he ever squared off against a vampire older than Lillian. He would hate to have to fight Vlad, or heaven forbid ancient Asha. Chris sort of felt bad for the pleading vampire as he phased the four of them to another, even more exclusive part of the city. This time, they didn't have to worry about skulking in the ether to hide his appearance. The place was protected by the most powerful normalizing charms he'd come across. Even out on the sidewalk, they hung thick in the chill night air, suggesting to the non-magical passersby that they rationalize away any dragons, fake elves, or kidnapped vampires. He banged loudly on a thick steel door, and they were admitted downstairs into the den of one of Lillian's friends. From the picture Lillian had painted, New York was some sort of vampire haven. The abundant nightlife and condensed population made for ample hunting grounds. But it was like an estuary full of young spawn. Lillian said that anyone with more than a few centuries under their belt would be driven mad by the constant squabbling and move elsewhere for some peace and quiet. She'd also made some sort of jibe in her endearing accent about recognizing a kindred spirit in her friend Jason, who was one of the older of her kind in the city. Naturally, that maddening comment had gone unexplained. Chris almost had to get intimate with the burly workat doorman for them to squeeze past each other in the tight, dark hallway. The wings didn't help, but they ended up exchanging friendly grunts and even a little nod of solidarity. Just two muscle-bound magic dudes out to make an honest living, like ships passing in the night. After a brief renewal of struggling at the entrance, their prisoner went quiet as they walked toward the red light and languid notes, oozing around the corner next to the coat check. Lisa reluctantly handed over her pistols to another bouncer. Cat couldn't keep her silver, for her own safety, but was strangely allowed the baton. Their party was soon ushered inside, to a little world of debauchery, blood, and sex no regular citizen would ever suspect was harbored under their feet. The lights inside were very dim, casting everything in cliché tones of deep red. What was it with vampires and clubs? Chris wondered muttering to himself as he frog-marched their captive to meet his new host. There were a few patrons standing around a huge, well-appointed bar that wrapped all the way around the back of the intimate space. Chris suspected the structure might have once been a small movie theater in the days before screen size became the end-all and be-all. Down two side aisles of stairs, four descending tears of screen booths faced the curtain stage. Currently empty for the moment, it was the clear focus of the amphitheater-like structure. On closer inspection, the folks at the bar were sipping something red from crystal goblets. Yep, real blood, real goblets, and they were looking his way with keen interest. For a fearful moment, he wondered if Lillian had accidentally led him to the slaughter and trusting her friend. But there were humans here too, he could smell them. Most of the clientele appeared to already be seated in the screen booths. By the anticipatory note of the merged conversation that reached him above sensuous background music, they were excited about something. It was some sort of sex club, he realized. The approaching dominatrix waitress in skin-tight red leather gave it away as she carried a tray of empty glasses up the stairs from a lower tier. Her masked outfit would have been an indecent display of her lush charms even if it wasn't for the cutouts for her eyes, nose, mouth, and crotch. She was small, curvy, and completely shorn downstairs. Her confidence saunter slowed as she reached their level. An initially speculative scenting of the air currents turned downright predatory as she caught wind of him. MMHHH, one of you smells just divine. The seductress husked, flashing a pair of very real white fangs as she sat her tray down on the bar. Is that you, Santa? Why don't you ditch these two? I'll be the naughtiest little elf you've ever dreamed of. Chris was in trouble. Behind the curvy vampire, he saw two more of her kind take notice of their fellow waitress' new toy. With preternatural hearing, their heads shot up out of booths where they'd been taking care of customers. 
To his surprise it was Cat who came to his rescue, boldly stepping between him and the diminutive, red-clad demonette. Sister, I've seen what Santa here is carrying around in his sack. She sneered knowingly. Trust me, it's more than you can handle. So why don't you run along and find us a seat and some drinks while you're at it? We're here to see someone named Jason. Chris' eyes went wide. He almost released Roman in preparation to defend Cat, but the vampire snorted after a few shock seconds. It transformed into a hearty laugh, which turned a few heads around the joint. Oh, you're good, yes indeed. But I'm afraid everyone's here to see Jason, sweetheart. You'll have to wait until the show's all finished. You're in luck, though. It's almost time and we've got just the booth set aside. Come find me in a few years when the wrinkles start setting in. Elfie, I might just consider letting you join our little club. Certainly got the attitude for it. And as for you, Santa, the offer stands, but I know better than to take a nibble of someone else's lunch without permission. Especially Lillian's. You can call me Red. Ah, okay. Thanks, Red. Chris managed, all the while wondering what the hell Lillian had set him up for. He became suspicious when they were led to a roped-off booth that must have had the best view in the house. The fight had truly gone out of their drug-dealing captive. Roman seemed resigned to his fate now. He sulked on the other side of the circular booth from the three. Red came back to serve them drinks in a few moments, on the house of course. Chris and Lisa didn't want anything but Cat ordered their finest scotch, just to be contrary. Roman finally spoke up and told Red to bring the bottle to the table. The unabashed vampire shot him a disgusted, hateful look. The bottle did show up though, and it certainly had enough stags, rocky, windswept outcrops, and other Scottish cliches to count itself fine. The two other waitresses lurked, making excuses to strut past their booth or linger nearby until Red scolded them. If Chris needed to guess, he would have wagered their names were black and pink by their outfits. They weren't anything similar to Red's other than being monochromatic, masked, and incredibly saucy. Black was a tall, pale goddess with flowing midnight hair and a slightly stern mouth. She wore a contraption of dark gauze which screened, but ultimately hid nothing of her slim beauty. Her only true concealment seemed to come from the feather mask which covered the top half of her face. Compared to the other two, Pink was displaying herself quite bashfully where it counted. Her lithe body and modest curves were adorned with only a string bikini set. It was very skimpy, the color matching her namesake, but at least her privates weren't on display. Caramel-skinned and athletic, she seemed the most youthful of the trio. Clearly susceptible to the draw of his blood, her fawnlets smeared dark lipstick in anticipation as hungry eyes repeatedly lingered longingly in his direction. The danger of her losing control must have been real, because whenever she flounced past or stuck her chin over the top of their booth to stare down, Red seemed to tense. As they sat nervously waiting, Chris Keen's senses took in more details of the strange establishment. The back wall displayed all sorts of harnesses, ropes, and sexual aids. There was also a door down by the stage from which people would sometimes issue or enter. The trickle of people was mostly made up of couples. They tended to be coming out tired yet flushed with whatever activity went on down there. We like to call it the playground. Red simpered in his ear, noticing his interest. All sorts of wicked things could be going on down there. Who knows? I understand we'll be trying to find a role down there for your miscreant friend. Keep him out of trouble for a while? Roman seemed to perk up a little at that, his second helping of whiskey pausing on its way to his lips. Something like that. Chris said, doing his damnedest not to let the strange vampire's proximity to his neck unsettle him too visibly. Lillian had been reluctant to divulge details other than a reassurance that he wouldn't be summarily executed once he was handed over. I suppose he might have some potential. Black chimed in on the conversation. A diet of bored, high-society New York housewife and a little education on the proper ways of vampirism could do wonders for the little traitor. I'm no traitor. Roman growled back. Is that so, my little rat? Red's purr was dangerous. And what would you call skittering around collecting whispers about Santa here to sell to your rich human friends? Hmm? Let's not even mention that poor, strung-out psyker you've been feeding poison to. You very nearly got our dear friend Lillian killed. She's been very generous to refer you to us instead of pegging you out to greet the dawn. Squeak up. Black teased from the sidelines. Roman didn't have a reply. His silence and downcast eyes were probably a wise choice. The little reminder about his costume now made Chris feel ridiculous. What had started as a joke between he and Michelle now had him sitting in a sex dungeon dressed as Santa. The damn beard itched and tickled his skin too. He didn't have time to ponder it longer though because the music swelled and then ebbed into the background. 
All of a sudden, the stage's black curtain was drawing back. Now you'll get to see Jason play, the leather-bound vampire said as the audience hushed. I almost wish it was my turn tonight but I wouldn't pass up the honor of hosting you. Enjoy the show. A slowly rotating bedspread was revealed as powerful lights brightened to illuminate the four occupants. Two more color-coded seductresses, blue and white, lay on either side of their young plaything. She was a beauty, lean and ripe with the perky bloom of womanhood. Her skin was snowy pale, freckled here and there, and pink with arousal in all the right places. Long blonde hair splayed around her and the teasing vampires like a golden braided river, a healthy patch adorning the top of her engorged mons. Beside the low bed, a tall African-American man looked down approvingly as Blue kissed at the young woman's neck and toyed with a daunting-tinted nipple. Amplified by a boom microphone lowered from the rigging, the woman's ragged moan made Chris cock twitch as the platform rotated her already glistening sex into view. It appeared he wasn't the only one who appreciated the sight. The dark, sculpted man, Chris assumed Jason, was swelling into his full and considerable endowment. White reached out a paradoxically dark-skinned hand to test the waters of their toy's arousal. She collected a sample, drawing out a few more lustful cries before rolling over to introduce the glistening fluid to the throbbing crown of Jason's proud erection. Beside them at the booth, Black seemed to quiver with barely contained excitement as the man prowled across the bed to mount the young woman. Something about her reaction clicked for Chris, and he finally understood Lillian's little joke. The colors weren't just sultry waitresses, they were all Jason's. I really wasn't prepared for anything like this. Lisa breathed, the thin balaclava was suddenly stifling despite the comfortably cool air. It was like a sexy car wreck, she felt she shouldn't be watching, but at the same time couldn't look away. There was nowhere else for her eyes to reasonably wander. Best night ever. Cat watched avidly beside her as the young woman was worked to a state of tortured readiness. She's human you know. Red taunted the marine. That could be you and me up there with him. With a showman's skill, Jason slid his thick knob between her puffy folds. At just the right moment for the audience to get the best view of their tight coupling, he groaned and sank deep into the saddle of her upturned hips. What followed was twenty enlightening minutes of debauchery. There was no doubt that it was a show. Like pornography, the three vampires positioned their bodies for maximum visibility and showmanship rather than optimal experience. That didn't seem to put Jason off his game. He coaxed all three women to shuddering, full-body pleasure with effortless mastery, openly sampling their blood in the process. Sitting there with a dry mouth and an uncomfortably erect problem to restrain, Chris thought he picked out at least half a dozen new tricks to take home. Perhaps that was what Lillian intended. As the lights finally dimmed and the curtain obscured the sharing of three cum-streaked pairs of marvelous breasts, the audience began clapping enthusiastically. Chris was left wondering how much of what he'd seen was orchestrated for him. It seemed unlikely that the show was set to occur minutes after their arrival, and that a prime booth was set aside. Was it some sort of vampire power play? He was left off balance, and his lingering erection only heightened his discomfort. I'm so sorry, I truly had no idea we were in for anything like this. Chris turned to a smiling cat and saucer-eyed Lisa, concealed behind their elf get-ups. At least they shared that humiliation, he thought belatedly. I'm going to throttle Lillian when I get home. You could try, but she might enjoy it. A deep voice approached from over his shoulder. It was the man from the stage, of course, dressed in nothing but a black silk robe and a self-satisfied grin. He stuck out a hand to shake as he reached their booth, a hand whose fingers had been thoroughly ensconced in Blue's womanhood just minutes ago. Jason. It's nice to finally meet the man behind the rumors, Chris. Chris' eyes narrowed as he realized he was being forced to stand in order to accept the man's introduction. His hesitation only seemed to make the vampire's grin widen, so Chris threw his dignity to the wind and stood. His state of obvious arousal drew a shocked gasp from Lisa, but more worryingly a throaty growl from Black. Yeah, nice to meet you too, Jason. That was quite some performance. Chris shook firmly, ignoring the red, Christmas-themed tent pointing up between them. Damn those velvety pants, they did absolutely nothing to mitigate his problem. Right then, he could have killed for a pair of denims. All good rumors, I hope. Thank you, I'm glad you found it so, invigorating. Chris chuckled darkly, he was in a vampire's dick measuring contest all right. Well, when in Rome. He stood straighter, forcing his hips out a little to make Jason take a half-step back or risk a prodding. You're a lucky man, Jason, there's no doubt. Chris was unreasonably satisfied to note that he was at least a few inches taller, not counting his towering wings. 
the rainbow of vampires had all somehow assembled themselves, watching avidly as the master of their harem faced down the hulking dragon. Chris was more than a little annoyed now. He hadn't signed on for any of this but knew just the thing to barb them in return. Listen, that was all very educational, but I can't really stay to chat. We've got more stops to make, bad guys to quash. Lillian told you the story, right? Indeed. We'll see that this lost little sheep doesn't cause any more trouble before the revelation. Jason's smile faltered as he glanced past Chris to the others at the table. My, those are some sweet-smelling helpers you have there. They seem very excited. Are you sure we can't convince you to stay a little longer? Pink is just dying to play. I'm afraid not. Chris clapped a companionable hand on the man's shoulder as if nothing about this situation was out of the norm for him. He glanced around, briefly meeting the masked eyes of each member of Jason's harem as he constructed his excuse. Lillian is waiting up at home for me. She demands a lot of attention. I think it's something to do with the pregnancy you know. Imagine beautiful red here, twice as amorous and three times as hungry as her tummy swells. That would be something, wouldn't it? I'll tell you though, Jason, it's all worth it. There's nothing quite like the feeling of sharing something so special, so intimate with a loved one. Not all of them reacted as he might have hoped, but Blue's yearning sigh and scent or red spiking arousal were enough for Chris' vindictive streak. Mmm, that does sound enjoyable. The mind boggles. Jason replied, his wistful tone making Chris suddenly feel like a cad for pointing out the deficiency of their vampirism. Well, if you have to run away, please take our regards to Lillian. You two must stop by for a night or two after the revelation. The girls have been hatching all sorts of plans for when we don't have to hide ourselves. A performance from the two of you would be the event of the year in our little circle. A performance? Like that one we just... All his bravado was undone in a stammering second. I'm not sure I... I hadn't even considered something like that. Sorry, you surprised me. I'm not sure, Jason, I'd have to give it some serious thought. You do that, Christopher. Jason's smile was back in full force as he ushered them toward the exit. And bring the fun elf with you. Red called melodically behind them as five beautiful vampires closed in on Roman, their new plaything. As they retrieved Lisa's weapons and walked back up the corridor out onto the deserted sidewalk, Chris was pensive. He understood that his elaborate intervention with Roman was orchestrated the way it was for political reasons. Something to do with stepping on the fewest number of local toes according to Lillian. What he couldn't get was what her game was in sending him to a place like that without prior warning. With Lisa and Kat under his care, and factoring an exposure to young and unpredictable vampires, it seemed risky. I really am sorry. He explained to his pair of minders as they reached the deserted sidewalk. That whole thing was so strange I can barely believe it happened at all. I'd be eternally grateful if it wasn't brought up around the office at work, but I guess I'd have to understand if it surfaced. It's going to be pretty hard to contain. Kat smiled. I mean, I'm pretty sure I got offered immortality and a position in a vampire stud stable of hose. And damn, he was put together right. That thing he did where his, that's enough. Lisa rounded on her. I know you're new at this but you need to work on your professionalism. It was a very unusual situation in there, but you were way too carefree. This isn't a night out on the town, cat. In some ways, I think we were lucky to make it out of there unscathed. That pink one especially was a hair's breadth from going off the rails and the place was absolutely packed with bloodsuckers. Chris noticed that cat seemed to unconsciously slip into a stiff posture during the reprimand, hands crossed behind her back with eyes locked dead ahead. Perhaps the whiskey had gone to her head because after Lisa was finishing, she struggled to withhold a giggle. What's so funny? Pa ha ha ha. Cat burst. Jason can scathe me however he wants after watching that. Besides, I don't think we were in much real danger. Chris could have dragged on out if things went goat fuck. Lisa looked up at Chris, shrugging with outstretched arms as if to say that she tried her best that he took their hands again, hoping to forestall any taking of sides by delivering them to their last target for the evening. They jumped to Harrisburg as a shortcut on their way to Baltimore. Chris could still picture the sight of Roddick's attack on the NSA facility well enough to teleport them safely. It brought back memories that he hadn't revisited in a while, his trip to Scotland, meeting Michelle for the first time. Come to think of it, he'd performed his first jump from this exact site, driven by fear and the need to escape the corrupted wizard. He'd come a long way since then. All the night's magical exertion was definitely catching up to him as they flew low toward the lights of the city. Chris didn't know if he was up for another roller coaster ride tonight. Thankfully, he needn't have worried. 
Despite the late hour, Benjamin Riker was up and reading a financial report in a leather armchair. Part of a younger generation than Patrick or Philip, Michelle said he was being groomed to be the successor of the dynasty. As such, he most definitely knew about beings. Thankfully, merit was taken into account when selecting for such a position. He was only Philip's cousin, but his aptitude in management, law, and most importantly politics put him ahead of the pack. As such, he was in the loop on all the strategic decisions involved in running the empire he was destined to inherit. Much of his time these days was spent wrangling their various political interests and lobbying efforts around D.C. into something resembling an organized muster. There was little drama when they appeared out of thin air in his living room. Ben gave a small start of shock, but he was half expecting the possibility of a visit from Dragon Santa in the next few days. Philip had called to warn him, but he hadn't thought it would come so soon. He adapted admirably. Christopher, hello? Good God, man, I have a doorbell. Ben put a hand over his heart and adopted his best winning attitude. A trick like that is a good way to give someone a heart attack. No need for putting holes in my wall either. I don't imagine we're going to argue much. Please have a seat, you three. You talk to Philip. Chris nodded in understanding but refused the offered seat. It ruins much of my jolly charm when you're prepared. I hope the message got through at least. I wouldn't exactly say I ran down to the store for milk and cookies, Chris. Benjamin chuckled amiably. But yes, I got your message loud and clear. I'd actually like to apologize to you on behalf of my family. Some of them get caught up in their wealth and scheming. Then they start taking our privilege for granted and forget that they're human, that their actions have human impact. What Patrick did to you and others was terribly wrong, and it was wrong of us to help shield him from the consequences. That's all well and good. And thank you, Ben. Can I call you that? Chris accepted his nod and ran his eyes around the modest room with interest. It wasn't nearly as ostentatious as he would have expected from a Riker. It's the first time anyone actually fessed up and said sorry. You'd think that would be the first thing on anyone's lips. Phil could have saved himself the hassle of a new carpet if he'd realized that. He can be a stubborn one. The younger Riker nodded. Blame his background in law if you like, rule number 17, never admit liability. I'd be more inclined to blame it on his lack of a soul, but that's just my opinion. Nice one. Kat encouraged out of the blue as she passed behind him on her own whiskey-inspired inspection of the room. She blessed Chris with a sassy hip bump as she did so. It drew Benjamin's attention like an owl to a mouse. Who are your helpers on this busy evening, Chris? Anonymous. Chris put a dash of menace in his voice to discourage any notions of further investigation. They're here for your protection mostly, in case I start getting carried away. Benjamin stiffened in his chair. Unlike Philip, he understood the potential fragility of his own life. This young man, this dragon, was a killer. His gut told him that they wouldn't be hearing from Cousin Patrick ever again. Though that wasn't too great a loss, and actually released the family from any ongoing obligation to him, it was a wake-up call to his self-preservation. Now there's no need for anything like that. He tried with open palms. I'm a reasonable man. Say what's on your chest, and I'll see what I can do to put you at ease. That's nice, but you're also a politician, so I'll take a wheelbarrow full of salt along with any promises. Chris found himself pacing across a rug and stopped, turning to look right at the guy. He just wanted to get this over with and go home now. It boils down to actions, Benjamin. Philip probably told you all about my mad threats. Okay, back at you. How will you and your family act to convince me you know how to play by the rules? Are you members of society, or a bunch of entitled kidnapping psychopaths? I don't care about how much money you make, I just want you to do right. I don't mean offense, but right by who, Chris? To what standard and letter of the law? If you have to ask yourself those questions, you're doing it wrong. Chris growled in frustration. You put yourselves on my radar, not the other way around. Just because your wealth and power have let you self-govern for decades doesn't mean it was ever right to do so. I see. Ben's tone soured despite himself. So you would appoint yourself our judge and executioner if necessary. I don't fucking want to, man. I'd much rather be at home in bed, never knowing you existed. Instead, I find your type running amok. All the DAs are too scared to touch you, the real judges and lawmakers in your pockets. If there's no one else around willing to call you out for your bullshit, I'll step up to the goddamn plate. That's just how I was raised. A fair point. You know, I used to feel the same way when I was your age. Would you believe that? The older man smiled wistfully. 
I wonder what went wrong along the way. It was a gradual slide into megalomania, I think. Well then pull yourself back out. Who knows, it might be satisfying. Anyway, it's late and I'm tired. I've said my part so we'll head off now. Sure thing. Open your eyes, Ben. There's a dragon dressed as Santa in your lounge room and we are racing headlong for an existential cliff. People like you could actually do some good in keeping the wheels from falling off this ride if you grew back your conscience. I don't care if you're making money hand over fist in the process, so long as you're pulling your weight. I'll be trying my best to do exactly that. Just, I don't know, hire some better ethics advisors. Something. Message received, I'll do what I can. Good evening, Chris. I hope if we meet again it will be in more friendly circumstances. So do I, dude. Chris nodded tiredly as Lisa and Kat converged to his sides. So do I. After they were gone, Benjamin sat up for several more hours until his eyelids started to rebel. He considered what the dragon had said honestly and fairly, brainstorming potential ideas down in a trusty notebook. There had been some valid points raised. He'd found himself having to look the other way in the family's dealings more and more over the last decade. Also, he was pretty sure no one had called him dude in at least as many years. It actually brought him a little smile. This story is continued in the next part. This podcast is part of the Erotica Podcast Network. We offer a free Erotica Podcast and a premium patron taboo podcast which contains more intense sexual themes. You can subscribe to the premium podcast for $2 per month or support the Erotica Podcast on Patreon to support us and allow members to request future stories and themes. Links are in the description. Thank you for listening.